This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Do you need a break? From the humdrum of the news, are you ready to gag at the next mention of Hunter Biden's name? Are you ready to explore anything else other than the political news of the day? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, you are in luck, my friend, because for the next hour, this is an hour that has been tailor-made for anyone that enjoys looking up at the sky, gazing at the scars, the stars, and letting their mind wander. If you've ever seen something in the sky at night or during the day, for that matter, and wonder, what is that? You're about to hear from the man who can probably give you the answer. If he can't, no one can. If you've ever looked up at the night sky and said, I wonder what's happening next, you're about to find out. Very, very pleased to do another edition of the Infinite Side of Midnight with the one and only Steve Cates, a man who, in addition to having the best voice in all of radio, is better known as Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He's also a terrific podcaster. He does the Dr. Sky Experience, which you could check out on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Steve, I can't believe it's been two weeks already. It's great to talk to you. Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you and all the listeners of your great radio show. Sitting here in the uh, outskirts of Phoenix, Arizona, we've become the center of all the weather news, it seems, as far as temperature. And obviously, we're about ready to break the 18-day record Oof. of 110 degrees of 18 days in duration or or, or even hotter that went and happened when I graduated high school. The record was back in June of 1974. And what's so scary about this, Frank, personally, my own home air conditioner went out the other night. Oh, boy. And other than sleeping outside, the temperature in my environs was 103 degrees through the whole night, but I toughed it out. But on a more serious note, people are saying that if 50%, Well, 50% of the residents of Phoenix would need medical care if there was a two-day duration-long blackout with these particular temperatures. So it's really serious, and obviously not just here, but in other parts of the world uh, experiencing this, how do we call it, obstreperous heat. Well, since, since you mentioned this, last week, for four straight days, Earth's temperature tied or broke the record for hottest days since they started keeping records on this, which is only 1979. They say the global temperatures were driven up by a marine heat wave in the North Atlantic. And I I hate having this discussion on the one hand because there are people on both sides of this question that try to politicize it. But I do enjoy having this discussion on the other hand because I think it's certainly noteworthy how hot it is, not just in Arizona or in uh, or or around the world, but er but really everywhere. So a lot of people are questioning how meaningful these heat records are. Some uh, criticize some of the solutions that uh, are being pushed by those that think climate change is a big problem. And uh, a lot of folks say that some environmental groups have made 
issues like wildfires even harder to address with some of their policies. Explain to us as objectively as you can, Steve, what we're seeing right now in terms of the global temperature. Well, it was first reported there's actually three in a row where the temperature was the hottest day ever recorded. If you look at averages on the entire planet Earth, not the single most high temperature ever recorded in one location. So this started back, I believe, on July the 4th, when the average global temperature was 62.92 degrees Fahrenheit, and it broke the record of 62.46 degrees, which is a small increment, as we see when we look into the point side of this whole thing. But many in the climatology world are also saying that the return of El Nino, which what, traps more heat into the Earth's atmosphere, and in this United States of America, some 57 million people were under dangerous heat as of July the 4th. These are, of course, things that are continuing on here. Some blame the total amount of volcanic activity that's been taking place around the world. All other things, human causation, all these things coming together. And it's just so interesting here that, that we seem to have this, and obviously with the you know, predominance of all these different wildfires, Nothing is helping and going in the right direction here. So we do have a problem on our hands. And many solutions have been offered out there. I know we were talking about some of this maybe even last time when we were doing the infinite side of midnight, that some scientists and even some others in the political world have even stated that we should inject into what? The Earth's atmosphere, particulates that reflect sunlight back and away from the Earth. And an even more, I think, totally sci-fi answer to this whole thing, what do we call it? Cosmic nudging, where if we could generate nuclear fusion and engines where we could push the Earth by maybe three tenths of a change and an increment and increase in its orbit would hopefully cool us down a little bit. But I say and I warn people, those in the science community, be very careful about that one, because the Earth does have one of the most stable orbits. This is interesting, Frank. The planet Venus has the most circular orbit of all the planets. But when we look closer at this goddess of love and beauty under skin deep, look at the temperatures on the surface of Venus. They're 910 degrees Fahrenheit every single day. So the circularity of an orbit really doesn't mean all that much. It can be some stability. But boy, do we have some headaches to address, right? That That is for sure. All right. Uh, let me begin, since we're talking about the heat, and I do hope you're able to stay cool, even with your air conditioning <laughs> issues. Let's talk about the sun. There's apparently sure. a massive sunspot right now on the sun. What does that mean for us? And please tell me this will not include a disruption in people's radio reception. Well, it could include so many things, including what you just mentioned at the last part of the, of the conversation. There's a giant sunspot. We call them active regions. And if people just go to websites like spaceweather.com, which has a 24-hour-a-day live image of the sun, Frank, AR region, the AR, active region 3363, is this very, very large sunspot. How big is it? Many times the diameter of the Earth. This one has been crackling with some activity, not as well, let's hope and pray, that it doesn't blow its lid. Because if it does, in the next day or two, we would be in the direct line of sight for any deleterious things that would come out of this particular sunspot, meaning flares or coronal mass ejections. But just hours ago, how about this, another sunspot group lurking on the left edge of the sun just blasted out an incredible M-class flare that's a little less powerful than an X, 
but it actually blinded temporarily the spacecraft that's seeing it. You're kidding. So the bottom line, yeah, go ahead. No, you're kidding. I, I mean, that's wild. I would never. No, it's just totally amazing. It's like the sun continues to see out all this energy as we move as we should during these sunspot cycles. But sunspot cycle 25, which is what we're enduring right now, scientists really didn't get it right, or there's really no way for them to really get it right. It's all predictions. They were saying that this should be a milder sunspot cycle, maybe not as powerful as previous ones. But we're noticing that there's a larger uptick and happening earlier. So this cycle could peak earlier than a two-year period in the future. But what's interesting about this, there's been many reports. The Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska first put out a few days ago an auroral activity report saying that this particular week, we might see a more powerful than a G1 of these you know, geomagnetic storms from the sun. But now they've retracted that. Because the original forecast was, wow, and it goes all over the Internet, of course, like wildfire. We all read this. Especially people who are interested in the, in the sky and space, that these auroral activities with this particular forecast, we might be seeing auroras all the way down to Florida as we did in April. But it's a less, it's been retracted, and we're saying that maybe over Canada and the northern latitudes that auroral activity should be seen. But the bottom line, Frank, to cut to the chase is that we're not out of the woods by any means. Mm. So if people go to that website, spaceweather.com, just to look at the live imager of the sun, you cannot miss, even if you do need glasses, to see how big and large this particular sunspot is. And once those magnetic fields flip or they move, they can create havoc. And let's hope and pray, seriously, with all the temperature concerns, we don't need another headache from the sun but it's more than likely that something will happen, and maybe not this time, this week, but just get ready for the big one because it's probably due, more than likely not. We will see what happens. All right, uh, by the way, if people have questions for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, they can give us a call. We'll try and get to as many of your questions as we can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You know of my interest in a UAP, Unexplained Aerial Phenomenon, what used to be called UFOs. There have been Absolutely. some strange new UAP reports from around the globe. What are we hearing, Steve? Well, Frank, here's one that really literally is, is just fascinating, if indeed it can be proven to be correct. Allegedly, back on June 13th of 1933, in a small town just around the area of Milan in Italy, a, a then discovered or at least identified something crashed, some kind of a craft didn't have wings, and of those days, of course, we didn't have some sophisticated aircraft like we have today. We had aircraft. So the Italian government allegedly dug out of the side of a mountain and recovered, according to this, you know, this individual, not a whistleblower, but somebody who's a researcher. And that researcher claims that the Italian government, under the highest levels of secrecy, demanded that anybody who saw this, you know, you'd be put in jail and who knows what else would happen. But the American military allegedly got involved in this, and the backstory is is that they actually captured or transferred this over to our control, but not so quick. It even is alleged in these documents that were passed on from people who then passed away, and they passed them to family members, to this researcher. He claims that even the dictator of Italy at the time, Benito Mussolini, was actually involved in covering this up. We hear the cover-up everywhere. We don't ever get to hear the truth on this. 
But if that is true, it's not something like the Roswell incident. It's way before the Roswell incident. It's one of those stories that uh, is just really mind-boggling. And look how many of these stories are coming out. I know you've interviewed some of the greats in this and continue to do that. Like the whistleblower in the military who claims that we've recovered, that is the United States, alien artifacts, and particularly alien craft, that obviously, when you say alien, not from this planet, sure. not from this world, and that when these researchers or scientists went inside the military investigators, the object was like the size of a you know, 30-foot triangular object on the ground. They went in, I'm repeating myself because so many people have heard it, but to conclusion, they became dizzy, they became nauseous, and when they looked inside, let's say, a 30-foot area, like if you had a big RV, they looked in and saw an entire area as large as a football field, a warpage of space-time. This is all fascinating. I can't wait till we hopefully hear the truth. What about you? Oh, so uh, same here, and I just wonder what process that's uh, that's going to take. That Italian <laughs> right. that Italian story, though, it, which is would be really wild in that it was fourteen years before the Roswell crash. What what is the sourcing for that? You alluded to a researcher. Who who is the researcher or investigator that uh, that is talking about that? Well, unfortunately, and I'm always honest, I don't know the exact name of that individual. But when you scour the Internet, of course, this will pop up very quickly there. But the interesting part about it, Frank, is that apparently this individual has been so fastidious in doing his research that he claims that he's gotten this information that was quietly or secretly passed on to him from family members who passed on, and they wanted them to reveal it. They wanted him to know the truth, at least from what his parents had told him or his grandparents. Wow. But it is fascinating. But once again, and, it, and it's so amazing, all these stories are coming out, but there's not one credible shred of evidence. You know, even with Roswell, and I've been there many times. Maybe you've been there. The listeners have been there. I've spoken there. I've given what I consider to be a program, which is a two-hour seminar on how to be a better sky watcher. And the whole purpose was, let's look at the nighttime sky map, as we do here on the infinite side of midnight, helping us to expand our minds and learn more about the things we know that are in the sky, so that when we can look and see things that we think are strange, anything's a UFO if you're not sure what the map of the sky shows. So let's take those three or 4% that we know mm. objects that we can identify, then let's delve into those. Right. And that was not well received by myself. People said to me that I was not a believer. And they said that I was actually a government agent trying to give disinformation. Even this is back in, what, around 2001. I was amazed when I walked out of there, not disappointed, just surprised that people didn't want to study the map of the heavens. To get from point A to point B, my point was, Know the highways that you're on, know the surroundings, and in the sky, that's obviously to me and many other people a joyous occasion, don't you think, learning about what we know in the sky. So now let's take whatever we know that we, are, we identify, and now we say, well, it wasn't the planet Venus, it wasn't the star Vega, it wasn't this object. Now we get into the discussion of what the heck was it. Right. By the way, I did look up uh, that Italian researcher is named uh, Roberto Pinotti. 
So uh, I'm okay. going to try and see if we could reach out to him because that's a fascinating story and it's one that I don't Absolutely. believe I've heard. But I, what I think you point to is a real problem with both the skeptic community and the UFO community because the, the skeptics refuse, it seems so often, to even entertain the possibility that uh, that there's unexplained aerial phenomenon that might be the result of something otherworldly. And the people mm. that are or that are uh, that believe that we're uh, visited by aliens eight times a day, they refuse to uh, entertain the possibility that the there hasn't been the kind of smoking gun that they'd like to see. And I, I just wish both sides of this issue. It's almost like uh, how I feel about the political divide in this country. I really with, wish both sides of this issue yes. would would handle things with a bit more of an open mind uh, on well, that. You're absolutely. And, and I may make an, a comparison here. It's not totally fair, but it's as if you're a member of a certain religion, which I respect all people's religions. But then if I went in and said something that I thought was credible to at least open a discussion, Many in that particular group, right. and using this as a religion, would say that I'm not a believer, and I'm there, I was somebody who was, again, you know, a charlatan or somebody else that's against their religion. Yeah. So the point is, many people believe that the whole UFO subject is almost like a cult or a religion. I, I'm I, not talking about whether people live or exist in the universe. I'm just trying to find out or help people to know what is in the sky. And then when we do see and document things that are strange, let's put our focus and energy onto that and not go down the wrong path. Uh, yeah, I think that's a perfect comparison because I, I think people on both sides of this equation do retreat it oftentimes with a religious fervor. All right. A lot of other issues I want to get into with you, but the phones are jammed sure. with people that want to talk with you. John is in Freehold. John, you're on with Dr. Sky. Hello, gentlemen. Um, so my question is, um, where... I, I assume we're far away from like a time machine, but if mm -hmm. we travel through space, you know, anywhere near the speed of light, if we travel like 10 years away from Earth, it would, it would be considered time travel, correct? Because we'd come back and it would be like 100 years later. Absolutely. You yeah. said it so Is well. Einstein brought travel? this up, John. Right. Einstein brought this up, and he actually, this is amazing, because when he did general and special theory of relativity starting around 1915, this was some of the most incredible things that anybody has spoken about, even more about than the UFO subject, at least, that we talked about. So the point is, if you traveled, let's say, to Alpha Centauri, four light years, we'll, we'll just describe it as that, the basic distance. If you and I left with friends and we went there, the trip would take four years to get there. We get there and we say, well, we don't like this place. We want to come back. It's another four years. But as we left our friends and family behind, the time difference would be different. Their time here on the earth would be that they would be way older than the short eight years that we've gone into space. And yet the whole conundrum is how and if is there any way that we can travel faster than the speed of light? And there are some theories in quantum mechanics that we're talking about, or even quantum physics, that even says that now. There may be some way that we've almost proven that, that we can travel or something can travel through time and space faster than the speed of light. So, John, you're absolutely right. You and I would get there in a period of time. We would measure on our clocks. Time would be slowed down in space. But here on the Earth, our what we consider normal time, we would be way older 
they would be way older when we returned. Interesting. 800-848-9222. We have heard that a lot of our listeners in the WABC area in the Northeast might be in a good position to, and uh, along with the rest of our stations in New York State, including uh, WVOS and the Catskills and all the stations we're fortunate enough to be on in the Northeast, that they could be in a pretty good position to observe the Aurora Borealis this week. Uh, first, give us a little bit of a a background, a primer on what the Aurora Borealis is, and two, how can people see it? When can they see it? What's the best method for people to see it? Auroras, energy from the sun, Frank, in the form of protons, these high-energy protons. They come wiggling out of the sun, just like you'd have a garden hose, and you put it on fine, and you're shooting that stream, let's say, to clean off the sidewalk or what have you. But in this case, those energy, energized particles hit the upper atmosphere of the Earth, way up in the area we call the ionosphere and actually beyond. And what they do, those protons excite the atoms in the upper atmosphere. Different colors like oxygen could be red or green. Nitrogen could be green. We see this on occasion, most predominantly when there's a solar max as toward this period of time. So the forecast was originally, as I mentioned before, a group in Alaska that does so much of this, the good folks at the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska, gave us this big forecast saying that it went viral, that we should be able to see the aurora borealis in not just northern latitudes in states of the United States and into Canada, but way down into the area of the lower 48. And back in April, we had that. So the auroras are something fascinating. If you go back into the history of studying auroras, we find out that people who've been, let's say, traveling like the great explorers that went to the North Pole by ship and then with dog teams. There's also some credible stories that auroras actually emanate sounds into the atmosphere. This is even more bizarre. So what I would tell everybody in conclusion, I think this forecast is not for a major sighting in the lower 48. That's what they've just revised. But stay tuned, because I remember a long time ago, Frank, as you know, and many listeners know, I'm a native New Yorker. I remember back in, let's say, 1969, I came out of my home. We lived in New Jersey then, and I could not believe what my father was showing me when I was a young boy. I looked up in the sky, maybe many New Yorkers saw it, and people all through the Northeast. This most incredible display of red and green colors with a large circular hole that was in the sky, and over the course of five or ten minutes, this thing moved like something eerie from another world. So... Auroras are caused by the excitation of atoms in the upper atmosphere, and they're caused by these high-energy protons, and they also occur in the southern hemisphere, naturally, as the aurora australis. So we'll keep you posted, and can you imagine, Frank, if we get one of these big displays when you're doing the show all night long? I'm sure it's going to be a night to remember because we'll be we'll be calling you to tell you that this is underway. It, it, would, be, it would be indeed. People should keep an eye out and keep our phone number handy so they could call in and give us a live report. All right, you we're going to we're going to continue with your uh, with your phone calls in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Doctor Sky is here talking about all things space, everything related to the stars. It is the infinite side of midnight. We do this once every two weeks and explore the areas that make your mind wander. And we're going to continue with your calls, your questions, your thoughts at 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kate. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Sunny, yesterday my life was filled with rain. Sunny, you smiled at me and really is in pain. All the dark days are done, the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere, sunny one so true. I love you. Sunny, thank you for that sunshine bouquet. Sunny, thank you for the love you brought my way. You gave to me your all and all. Now I feel ten feet tall. Sunny one, so true. I love you. Sunny, thank you for the truth you let me see. Sunny, thank you for the facts from A to Z. My life was torn up with no Justy Springfield singing about Sunny. We're talking about what's sunny, what's dark, what's celestial, what's in the sky with Dr. Sky. That's our affectionate name for Steve Cates. You could check out his podcast, which is outstanding, the Dr. Sky Experience. You could search it in any podcast app or you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, I understand that there was a major discovery recently. Recently, the largest galaxy ever discovered in the entire universe recently became known to us. What do we know about this and how did we how did we discover it? Well, just when we think things are getting bigger in the universe. And by the way, we celebrate the one year anniversary, Frank, of the first images that came from the James Webb Mm. telescope. But when all you put that all together and add one and one and get two and then more as we go to infinite, we find out that astronomers have detected something that is really mind-boggling. Here's an object three billion light years distant. Now, we know the universe extension goes out from this alleged, as some people say, Big Bang to the expansion 13.77 billion years ago. This object three billion light years away, but it's known as, it's called the Alcyon-Eos galaxy, okay? Alcyon-Eos, excuse me to pronounce it correctly, at this early morning hour. But Frank, here it is. It's 16 million light years wide. Now let's put that in perspective. Our Milky Way with the trillion stars that are in that big spiral like a child's pinwheel, probably, and this is the guess that astronomers, they don't really know, 150,000 to 200,000 light years across. How about a galaxy 16 million light years wide? 
goes to tell us what? That the universe is literally, like this show is now called for the hour, infinite. And that's incredible, mm. just mind-boggling. All right. A lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Al in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good morning, Mr. Miranda. Good morning, Dr. Sky. Good morning. A couple of comments. Good morning, Al. How, how are you this morning? I'm hanging in there. You know, uh, as far as Roswell, it's really hokey when you go there. To me, it's like uh, a lot of it looks fake there. They got like a, I hate to say it, it's like a corny museum, you know. So as far as uh, you going, they're giving you a legitimate talk and them not taking it serious, you know, uh, they themselves there, they don't really want a really uh, evidence-based uh, thing, you know. No, I hear you. And I wanted to mention, yeah, I want to mention something. It's not the administrators of that museum. I thought they did a yeoman's job, you know, as best as they could. It was actually people who were there who were the attendees. And I found that a little strange. But you know what? Being a native New Yorker, I got over it really quick. Exactly. So (laughs) I figured I'll move on. But go ahead if you have more to ask. Yeah, in 1969, when you saw that in New York, uh, I think I saw the same thing. But mine uh, was like more of a purple haze. I was up at Woodstock. So uh, mm-hmm. mine wasn't red and green like yours. Uh, here's my question. Is it possible that we could utilize a meteorite speed? Because we've landed on meteorites already. Uh, mm-hmm. Can we put equipment on there that would save us a lot of uh, costs as far as getting out to acquire a target as far as even Mars? And well, even a return trip, could we do that to utilize the actual natural uh, trajectory and speed that that ha- has at the, at the moment. We could, but the problematic thing with that, Al, is this. We have to know which way it's going, because some of these asteroid bodies are headed directly for the sun, and that would be a big mistake. You know, obviously, if we were to put our gear on there and say, wow, we're going to loop around the sun, when the possibility uh-huh. is that the asteroidal body might do that. But the reality is, yeah, there are some of these objects that would be, you know, a- able to be, if we could technologically hook up to, The most amazing one, Al, would be a comet. But the problem with the comet is it's large, it's messy, it goes very, very fast, and it would be very difficult to catch up with. But the point is, comets do their own things. And as one astronomer basically said about comets, they're just like cats. They both have tails, and they do exactly what they want. So maybe we need to find some other object to help get us there to the destination. And right now, the best way is to build our own spacecraft to use it and direct ourselves to the trajectory we want to go to. Thank you, Al. Hey, speaking of meteors, apparently there was a strange meteor or a rock found on Mars by the Perseverance rover. I know we're always so interested in Mars. It's always so shrouded in mystery, the red planet, possible home Mm -hmm. to Martians. What do we know about this strange meteor that was found there? Well, it's interesting. Perseverance is doing very well, you know, being on the surface of Mars for about a two-year period. But as it's moving through to zero, this this impact area, which probably at one time was a lake, you know, an actual flowing water area, which dried lake bed now, the space scientists actually came across as this little thing crawls across the surface of Mars very slowly. It finds this object that looks like a rock, but is probably more metallic. I'm pretty confident that it is. I don't have any inside information on it. But the interesting thing, Frank, is it looks just like it has, well, it has like a hole, like a donut. And what makes me think, and many other people in the space area, think that it really is a meteor or a meteorite, since it's on the surface, is that it has chunks of material strewn around it. 
And the reason I think Mars is more impactful or maybe has more of these uh, relics on the surface, remember, the atmosphere of Mars is much thinner than that of the Earth. So for an object, whether this object is 10 feet, 15 feet, who knows, whatever the size really is, its ability to survive impact as it comes through the Martian atmosphere may be a lot better because there's a thinner atmosphere there, and the more of that metal is simply going to survive. But you know what it reminded me of? And this is interesting to kind of do a little plug here for something. It reminded me of a scene out of the 2001 movie. Right. You know, obviously Kubrick's great 2001 A Space Odyssey, when we saw the guy in the ape suit, Moon Watcher, you know, actually look up and see this big monolith on the surface. But also, the reason it reminds me of that is we just have a brand new interview up there. How about this with Dan Richter, the guy in the suit who's a mime. And I think people might be interested to hear that interview, though it was done years ago. He, according to Arthur C. Clarke, is the most famous non-identified actor in history. How about That's outstanding. That? Dan Richter. I'm going to check that one out. It's on the Dr. Sky Experience. Check it out at Red Apple uh, Podcast but it reminds Network. Me of the surface of Mars when you see that. It looks just like the scene that Kubrick created. Now, you've got to be really talented as a mime. Imagine it when you hear that story. It's amazing. People think, oh, you know, you just put the suit on and you act. No, this is a man, and so is the entire troop that did so much in the way of almost like ballet in these uh, costumes. Oh, no question. But Kubrick, but Kubrick was such a fanatic about it, as they say, that he would shoot the thing five, 10, or 15 times and actually tell these actors to get out of their uh, you know, costumes and let's do it again until we get it right. Amazing. You know, that is such a great film, and it holds up today, in fact, with a lot of the concerns that we're seeing with artificial intelligence. It actually may be more relevant today than it was uh, yes. back in the late 60s. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He knows a great deal about space, a great deal about astronomy. We're taking your phone calls, your questions about anything that involves looking up. 800-848-9222. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Okay. I have a Chinese menu. It has an item on it. It's called Seven Stars Behind Moon. Is that possible for the moon to occult the Pleiades? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. And, Bill, again, good morning to you. This is amazing. You bring up some very good, you know, conversation points and, and comments. Yes. The moon itself, because it's angled about seven degrees above this thing we call the ecliptic. In other words, if you drew the line as if that was the equator, the moon can wander. So one of the most amazing events, and I've seen it a few times. I don't know if you've you're actually seen it, but you're asking about it. The moon can occult those stars and actually cover it up. And what's even more phenomenal, I think I found this the hard way. A friend of mine drives a Subaru vehicle. And if you look, this is interesting, Frank. If you look at the logo of Subaru, it's actually the Pleiades star cluster. Huh. I didn't only found that out a couple of weeks ago. But yes, Bill, that happens. They call them lunar occultations. And when the moon covers those stars, more than seven, but we call them the seven sisters, it's quite a sight to see. You can watch in the telescope the moon moving closer to that star, and it just doesn't blink out instantly. It takes a few, well, it depends on where it's coming on the, on the edge of the moon, because the lunar surface is mountainous. You'll see it actually, I've seen the star fade, come back in light, you know, to light, and then quickly shimmer and then disappear. 
but it pops out the other side in about 50-some minutes. That's amazing stuff. Absolutely. Really. 800-848-9222. Steve, we began the hour by talking about climate change and weather. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Mars had some pretty dramatic climate change about 400,000 years ago, didn't they? Absolutely. And the Chinese scientists, they have, and again, let's give China the credit that they deserve for their space program. They did something very quickly. The backstory is they sent a lunar, excuse me, a Martian orbiter to Mars. They also had a descent module that soft landed and in one fell swoop, a rover. So the United States and Russia didn't do that in one big mission. But here's the point. Those scientists in China have been studying, saying that there's been evidence of lots of change on the surface. In other words, there are these sand dunes. They look like they have sediment that looks like water. Uh, Something happened on Mars. And and here's my guess. And and I don't like to guess, but I'm always honest. Nobody really knows. But here's my take on it. A long time ago, maybe even before 400,000 years, something slammed into Mars. The evidence for that is a region on Mars called Hellas. If you look at a a Martian globe, it's one of the deepest uh, impacted areas. In other words, like Death Valley would be a deep depression you know, the Dead Sea, this is below Martian, whatever we would call like the surface if it had sea level. But I think what happened in there, Mars's atmosphere became extincted. And then over the course of time, even like 400,000 years ago, dramatic changes happened on the surface of Mars. The water was gone, but some of the things changed on there. What could have changed? The angle or the magnetic field, which now doesn't exist on Mars, some strange things happened. I hate to say this, but a lot of people may not like me saying this. It probably really is a pretty lifeless world at this point. We may hopefully find some relics, but I don't know. It's probably underground where the water still might be, and that's the chance that life Mm. might exist. That's my opinion. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Hi, Steve. I want to bring up two things, two questions. First is... uh, I'm doing this audio book that came out recently, Thinking 101, and they were talking about how people are overconfident in themselves, and that sometimes is dangerous. But one of the things was they said, uh, explain what how a helicopter works. And mm-hmm. that's a pretty good thing to ask. Like, like people don't really know how a helicopter works. Uh, and I think that's part of the space technology, too, right, with these rovers. The second thing I want to bring up is uh, the uh, basically the camel. You had camel cigarettes. I don't think you can smoke in space, but have they studied mm-hmm. the camel? Because they're pretty hardy. They live to as much, you know, around 50 in many cases. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they have to drink 30 gallons of water. Uh, what about the camel in relation to sturdiness and, and extreme conditions? Well, I think it's one of the animals on the planet. Of course, the astronauts, if you look back in the history, uh, Joe, the Mercury 7 astronauts, when they did desert training, you see them on camels or other animals. But camels, the ship of the desert, I gather, if you describe animals in that way, and I don't think any camel would be mad at me for saying that. I'm giving it a compliment. But they have the endurance ability to handle what? The storage of water in their bodies. They can endure these great temperatures. But the interesting thing is, now I'm shifting gears a little bit, Joe, but there's something out there that may have already populated the moon. I don't know if I've mentioned it here, Frank, before, 
the uh, Israelis sent a spacecraft as a lunar you know, lander, and it crashed. And on board this particular spacecraft, there were actual artifacts of what we call living creatures. There were these little tardigrades. And if you look at them under a microscope, they called them water bears. And they're tiny little things about the size of a, you know, the, the period at the end of the sentence. And what these are, they can handle radiation. They can handle heat. You could put them almost and boil them. They've even frozen them and they came alive 10 years later. That's amazing. But the camel, obviously, on four legs. This one, I believe, has six. But it's a microscopic thing, a very tiny little thing. So the moon may be populated with these unintentionally that life from Earth may now exist on the moon. But let me go back really quick, Joe, to your comment on helicopters. I think most scientists understand how they fly, you know, roll, pitch, and yaw. But on the surface of Mars, the Ingenuity helicopter, we have to remember this. That is really one of the most amazing things. If you could give a Nobel Prize to a group and a little device, that would probably, in my opinion, deserve one. And here's why. Sure. That little thing, like a drone, remember, the atmosphere, as I mentioned before, on Mars is thinner than Earth. So the rotation speed, if you have a drone or you know somebody that has one, the rotation speed of those propellers has to go so much faster than what we would have on the Earth. And now we're talking about an object that on average is maybe 40 or 50 million miles away. And it's flown, I think I'm correct in this, somewhat 51 times it's made a flight on the surface of Mars. Wow. Doesn't this stuff get interesting? Yeah. No wonder, no wonder we love all this. Absolutely. Right? Hey, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Dr. Sky is here talking about all things space, all things involving the sky, and we'll do so straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I look at you and suddenly Something in your eyes I see Soon begins bewitching me That old devil moon That you stole from the skies It's that old devil moon In your eyes You and your glance Make this romance Too hot to handle the great Frank Sinatra singing about that old devil moon. By the way, if you're a Sinatra fan, 
You've got to check out uh, Joe Piscopo's Sunday night show on uh, Frank Sinatra. It's now syndicated nationally, and it's a terrific show. Joe's got great stories, he's got great guests, and uh, he plays a lot of great Sinatra tunes. So if you're a Sinatra fan, you've got to check that out. Uh, just type in Joe Piscopo Sundays with Sinatra, and uh, it'll come right up. It'll tell you where you where you can listen in your area, or you can go to RedApplePodcastNetwork.com as well. Hey, uh, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, and he also has a terrific podcast, the Dr. Sky Experience. Steve, I understand we got our hands on the first neutrino map of the Milky Way. How significant is that? What does that mean? Well, if you dig into what neutrinos are, very simply, they're neutral subatomic particles that have little mass. And what's even more bizarre is they come out from what happened when stars exploded, when the universe began. But the bizarre thing, some claim that 100 billion neutrinos pass through your body harmless to each and every one of us, thank goodness. But there's that the astronomers now have been able to identify in space and as if you took little dots and created a face or a picture by making little dots across the page, we now have what, can, what seems to be a much better map, or at least a more accurate map, of what the shape and size of the Milky Way is. Because remember, how do you look at the big object that you're surrounded by if most of the object that you're trying to see through, it's like you're trying to see the other side of what's across the horizon when you have a thunderstorm taking place. The clouds are blocking the path. So these neutrinos are impervious. They're obviously almost like invisible. It's almost like having radar seeing, and that's being simple. So this is interesting. We're learning so much more about our galaxy. We're learning so much more about these particles. And again, these are amazing particles. Imagine something that has little or no mass, but that is a neutrally charged particle coming from the explosion remnants from billions of years ago. And imagine how many, as I said before, pass through our bodies every second unbeknownst to us. Isn't that incredible? It certainly is. 800-848-9222. Larry is on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Steve, um, it's a pleasure. Good morning. I have to ask you a question, and it's, and it's not, a, it's, it's not a, a techie question. Very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I've wondered, about this for, I've wondered about this for a very long time. With all sure. our political enemies around the world who want our country destroyed, do we secretly behind closed doors have a relationship with our, our worst of enemies when it comes to UFOs? You know, that's a great question. I don't know, but I would imagine this. If you follow, Larry, the story of how non-cooperative the Chinese government is about anything to do with cooperation in space, I would imagine that they're not going to reveal anything, or we don't know for sure if they even would. They don't seem to be very keen on that. As far as the Russians go, I think there have been some contacts over the years. You know, it would take hours to explain this in great detail. But I would think Russia has more of an uh, open-door policy, believe it or not, even though with the crisis in the Ukraine, if you look at history overall about these different UFO sightings and other countries like Frank and I were talking about, Italy, there's a lot of information. But still, Larry, the most bizarre thing, and it sounds, I'm sorry to sound like I'm repeating myself, why can't we at least, I'm not naive, get to the bottom of this I wouldn't, you know, set my hair on fire or jump out of a building, or I don't think people would lose sleep over this. If we were once told that, yes, in the preponderance of stars that look like there's life capability in this universe, 
why would it not be the case that there's probably some sort of life out there? Unless, finally, Larry and Frank, maybe we know something where we've been threatened by other Mm. worldly entities. That's bizarre, and let's hope it's not the sci-fi route, which is usually what Hollywood makes as far as motion pictures. Yeah, I saw a headline today that was speculating about whether Elon Musk, who among his many other claims to fame is the head of SpaceX, whether he may be looking to leave the planet uh, someday. Mm-hmm. And uh, it got me wondering what's happening with Starship. Uh, what's going on with the next launch of Starship and what's going on with uh, SpaceX and private space travel in general? Well, with Starship, as far as what we're trying to do, I'm trying to get an answer, as many people are. It looks like when the last episode took place on April 20th, that amazing launch, then the most powerful rocket in the world, it tumbled out and they destroyed it. The next of launches, according to himself, Elon Musk, saying that it could be six to eight weeks beyond that time. Well, that hasn't happened yet. But the truth is, I think we're going to get, I don't know, that's honest as always, we're going to get another launch of this Starship. And we're going to continue to test this until they get it right. But we have to look at this. His great success now has been with so many of the Starlink satellites that have been launched. And we're finding out that Starlink, get a look at this, has had to make so many maneuvers, Frank, of their Starlink satellites up there. Matter of fact, I'm ready to just sign up and get it from another location we have up in the mountains of Arizona until (laughs) cell phones don't work. We're going to try it. But here's the point we find out that Starlink. They have had to move their satellites out of the way over 25,000 times to avoid other space debris and space junk since December 1st of 2022 and up to May 31st of this year. These avoidance maneuvers, get a little of this, they're important, but they're saying that if this continues and the Starlink cluster gets bigger, then they may have to move these satellites a million times in a half a year. What's the point? Low Earth orbit is getting overcrowded, to say the least. The understatement of the entire show. It's incredible. I want to try and get in at least one or two more calls here. Thomas is listening on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas. Hello, Frank. Hello, Dr. Sky. Uh, Good morning, Thomas. Have you ever been to the uh, Skywalker Ranch to investigate all the things about going on there? Well, I have not, and you know something? I don't even know if I'd want to go there after reading and hearing all those stories over there. I guess I'm more of a chicken than I thought. But no, have you yourself ever been there? That'd be interesting to ask you. No, no, no. (laughs) I'm just like you, my brother. I'm going to stay away from that one. I'd rather watch the documentary or the movie about it. Yeah, uh, I heard it from George Knapp on TV about the Skywalker Ranch, all the things happening out there. Yeah, I think we're probably overdue for a uh, a segment on that so we will uh, look into that one in the uh, in the future steve before sure. before we uh, run out of time it was recently the anniversary of the last space shuttle mission i know there was uh, a big uh, curtailment of the space shuttle program in light of what what happened with the challenger and the columbia what was the space shuttle why was that so different from space uh, the space travel that occurs now now and uh, do you think we'll ever see the space shuttle program come back probably not see it come back frank there was 135 missions some obviously ended in disaster majority great successes i was at the last one of those 12 years ago i'll never forget it it was the only launch we were reporting live 
on local television for here in Phoenix, and it was a most amazing experience. But beyond that, here's what I think. The space shuttle was great because it was more like a big truck in the sky. It got the Hubble Space Telescope up. It got so many other secret missions up. We're moving on to a new generation of rockets and commercial space flight. So the future looks positive in my mind. We're going to have to end it there, Steve. It is always a treat to chat with you. I hope people check out the Dr. Sky experience. I'll see you in two weeks, my friend. Thank you. Good to be with you, Frank. Appreciate it. In the immortal words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. try to do on this radio program is cover every subject you can imagine. What other radio program can go from talking about space, talking about what's happening in the in the in the cosmos to talking about the all-star game? I don't know that there is one. We cover anything and everything on this program. And one of the things that I seek to do often to the frustration of the people that listen to this program is provide a forum for voices that don't get heard elsewhere, either because people don't know who these voices are or because they've been blackballed or shadow banned or censored or labeled a kook or a nut or a conspiracy theorist's. If chances are, if someone has been labeled a conspiracy theorist, they are welcome here. Now, it doesn't mean what they're saying is right. Doesn't mean what they're saying is accurate. In fact, it may not be. But I definitely think there's something wrong in America today when we're talking about free speech and the very first amendment listed in the Bill of Rights that we're so willing to stifle conversation about speech. And my view of a situation is if somebody is saying something that's incorrect or wrong or off base, even wildly so, the solution to that is more conversation and more speech. And that's why I have always been a huge, huge fan of Skyhorse Publishing. A couple of weeks ago, there was a column in the Wall Street Journal all about Skyhorse Publishing and its president, who you're going to hear from in a moment. And it it says the headline, I think, covered Skyhorse aptly. Skyhorse Publishing, the house of the canceled. It goes on to describe its president 
as an old-fashioned liberal who welcomes authors from Woody Allen to Alex Jones and topics from 2020 election fraud to a defense of Venezuela. Skyhorse has always been my favorite publishing house as a reader. Its authors have been among my favorite guests, and I am thrilled that the president of Skyhorse, Tony Lyons, is kind enough to join me in studio. Tony, it's great to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Now, I was talking with John Kiriakou the other day, and uh, he, I think, summed up the same attitude that I've heard from a lot of your authors about Skyhorse. Well, you know, I, Skyhorse Publishing came to me, and I like these guys. Me Skyhorse. too. I love they, those they guys. Have, they really are independent thinkers. Uh, and they, um, they said, hey, we have an idea for a series. I, I had written a book for them called um, The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis uh, in the second half of the Trump administration. And so they liked that, and they said, how about a, a how-to guide? I said, like what? How, how to do what? And they said, well, we're envisioning three books. CIA Insider's Guide to Lying and Lie Detection, uh, Surveillance and Surveillance Detection, and Disappearing and Living Off the Grid. And just as we signed this contract, COVID hit. So mm. I had nothing else to do but to sit and think <laughs> the big thoughts. <laughs> so that's what I did. So I was really struck by this because uh, his attitude where he said, I like those guys, I thought was interesting and liked, like what they do. But the kind of creative process that you worked with collaboratively with him is something similar from what I've heard from other authors, ranging from Richard Stratton to Roger Stone and everybody in between. How do you choose which authors to publish and who to work with? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I, I get something like 50 to 100 proposals each day via email, and that's just me personally. So there are a lot of people with ideas and, you know, many of the people who we work with are, you know, people like Alan Dershowitz who pitch book after book and we talk about them. We sort of uh, mull them over, try to think of what would sell, what's an important book to come out right now. So, you know, there are a whole bunch of different factors, but um, but I want, really want to publish books that are, you know, on subjects that are not covered in other places by people who are often getting censored or you know, stifled in some way or vilified. So, you know, but people also who have an important message. And, you know, so that's the general criteria. Is it an important message? Is there a readership for it? And, you know, can they really pull it off? Now, your your publishing house published Dershowitz's book, The Case for Vaccine Mandates, and it also published The Case Against Vaccine Mandates, just to show the wide range of opinions. So all these authors that you publish, they're not necessarily folks that you agree with, right? Yeah, definitely not. I mean, it's more a question of getting the information out there. So it was really shocking when those two books came out, and then also The Case for Masks and The Case Against Masks came out. And, and we found that anything that was countercultural at the time was, was just getting canceled. So it was getting taken down off book platforms, not carried anywhere, not mentioned in, in uh, newspapers or magazines or on websites. Um, you know, it was really shocking that, you know, during a time of, of crisis, the government just clamped down and decided what the truth was and wasn't willing to allow any other point of view. What's even more disconcerting, though, is – 
I mean, it's terrible that there's government censorship, but to at least if the private sector media outlets were allied in trying to fight against government censorship, at least you'd feel that you have a fighting chance at having a conversation. But unfortunately, with what YouTube has been doing, what Facebook has been doing, formerly what Twitter was doing, you get the sense that there's government censorship, then there's a whole new, another class of big tech censorship, and a lot of media personalities. I've seen this in talk radio. They tend to censor themselves for fear of advertiser boycotts, for fear of a flood of angry listeners. When I had Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on on Monday, there were people uh, tweeting at the owner of this radio network that I should be fired for putting on someone that's spreading vaccine misinformation. And I I said to myself, when did we wake up in 1984 and this this hostility towards free speech? So that's why I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. How did you feel about that Wall Street Journal column referring to Skyhorse as uh, as a publishing house that recruits canceled people? Yeah, so I spent uh, three hours with the guy who wrote that, and uh, and I was really shocked at at how good it was. You know that he really got the point of it. That you know we need more dialogue and debate in this country. We don't need the government to tell us what to do, what to think, or you know, God forbid, what to read. And you know that's what this country is all about. It's all about having a dialogue. And so you know, I'm publishing a lot of books that counter specific narratives. And, you know, we don't want a big corporation to then have control over a government agency and then have that agency write a letter to private corporations telling them not to tell certain stories, not to cover certain things, not to, you know, publicize certain books. So, you know, when Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book came out, The Real Anthony Fauci, you know, it was censored everywhere in every conceivable way. And, you know, you really felt the power of the government. It was not even really big tech in my mind. It was the government telling big tech not to cover this because they had a specific narrative and they didn't really want the American public to make a choice. So that was a book. You know, the real Anthony Fauci has 2,194 citations. It's got a blurb from a Nobel Prize winner. You know, since when can a book like that be censored in the United States of America? But now, even worse than that, Bobby Kennedy's running for president and he's being censored as a candidate so that, you know, they can take a candidate and kick him off YouTube. Unbelievable. I mean, that's just shocking to me. We're going to talk about uh, Mr. Kennedy in a second. As uh, Jerry Seinfeld would say, you know, they call it show business, not show fun. And you can provide a forum for authors. I could provide a forum for guests and callers to talk about outlandish things. But if we, you know, we don't make enough money to stay in business, then uh, the people that we have to pay our mortgage to, they don't necessarily care about the cause of free speech. Is the publishing business, at least the model that's done by Skyhorse and what you do, is it still profitable? Can you still make money publishing? books. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you have passion for it. So, you know, one of the things that I've been doing for the last, you know, two or three years is I just go on shows all day and I talk about the books that we publish. I don't think any other publisher does that. You know, really any other publisher. I've, I've never heard anybody else do that. So, you know, if you really go out and push your books and try to counter the censorship or the, you know, even books that aren't censored, it's just hard to sell books now. So you have to work hard and, and you have to have an author who's willing to work hard. So that's a lot of, of what goes into the choice of which books to publish. 
So when, you know, Alan Dershowitz publishes a book with us, he's willing to go on shows all day. He's mm-hmm. willing to look at that cover and try to make it perfect and, and have it change 50 times and, and rethink the title. You know, so we want people with passion, people who really believe what they're publishing and have some kind of mission and want to get their story out to the public. Tony Lyons is here, in addition to being the uh, president and publisher of Skyhorse Publishing. He is the co-chair of the Super PAC American Values 2024, which is supportive of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for president. We're going to get into that in a moment. If you have questions for Tony, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Speaking of Robert F. Kennedy uh, Jr., I had him on the radio on Monday, and we were talking a little bit about censorship by big tech, namely that uh, decision by that Louisiana federal judge to prohibit the federal government from telling social media companies what they can and can't do. This is what he had to say. I mentioned repeatedly in the decision, I was the first person that the Biden administration began censoring on, on January 23rd, 2021. So three days after President Biden came into the office, the uh, his uh, White House reached out to Twitter and Facebook and ordered them to censor me. And, you know, three weeks later, after a lot of struggle with the media and, and threatened them, if they didn't censor me, that they were going to lose their Section 230, which is an existential threat to these companies. And um, and three weeks later, Instagram took down my account, 900,000 followers, etc. And then and to this day, they continue to censor me. Google is censoring me today. Wikipedia, which was part of the groups, the White House, uh, I'm the only one on Wikipedia that doesn't have an edit button. Is, I mean, is that frightening or what, that that happens in 21st century America? Yeah, so I think that that is incredibly frightening. You know, when you think about it, um, you know, the use of words like anti-vaxxer, conspiracy theorist, even domestic terrorist, uh, misinformation, disinformation, these are all just ways to avoid having real dialogue. So, you know, like I said before, you know, Bobby Kennedy's book had 2,194 citations. But more than that, you know, when I talk about the passion of, you know, people who have written books for us, nobody had more passion than Bobby Kennedy. I mean, he worked on this book seven days a week, 16 hours a day for nine months, and he was meticulous in his research. So, you know, people say he's a danger to public health, you know, people who 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 don't like him, who want to vilify him. But, you know, what is he really a danger to? So if somebody disagreed with the, you know, the data in the book, they could come out and they could say what they disagree with. So using terms like misinformation or conspiracy theorist or anti-vaxxer, it's just sort of a way of trying to attack somebody. It's not an argument. So if you have an argument, you should make it. And clearly, You know, the people against Bobby Kennedy have the power of the U.S. government on their side. They have the power of government agencies. They have the power of all the big tech companies. So if they had a better argument, they would make it. They wouldn't call him names. They would have a debate with him. And he's been desperately trying to have that debate with the people who disagree with him. And they're afraid to do it because he's a danger not to public health, 
but to corporate profits. Alan Dershowitz told me he once had a debate with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think it was on the vaccine subject, and it was taken off of YouTube. I mean, you think if there's anybody that can make the case as well as Robert Kennedy does to the contrary point of view, it would be Alan Dershowitz. That's exactly the kind of thing we should be seeing more of, not uh, not less of. I know you, you alluded to the fact that you've published uh, several of Robert Kennedy's books. I know you guys go back a long ways. How did you get to know him initially? I got to know him first about uh, 13 years back when uh, uh, he was giving speeches on uh, vaccine safety. And I was fascinated by it because my daughter has a vaccine injury. And I was, you know, reading in place after place that there are no vaccine injuries, that vaccines are always safe, they're always effective, that, you know, nobody should fear them. And so, you know, having a child who had that kind of an injury I was looking for somebody who would tell the truth. So I think that, you know, even when people describe Bobby Kennedy as an anti-vaxxer, you know, what you should really think about is that there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children in this country who have vaccine injuries. And, you know, that's a fact. So the question of how to make vaccines more safe, you know, Bobby Kennedy's concern with vaccine safety is really something that people should be grateful for. So I was one of those people who was grateful that I thought he was, you know, defending me and that it was then my job to try to defend him because he was going up against some of the most powerful companies on the planet and the most powerful government on the planet to try to get justice. I know it's late. Can you stick around a few more minutes? Yeah, sure. All right. Well, Tony Lyons is here. We're going to take some of your calls. I have a lot of uh, a lot of questions for Tony about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as a presidential candidate. I, I don't know that uh, I don't know that Tony Lyons has been in the habit of uh, co-chairing super PACs for other presidential candidates previously. We'll ask him what's so special about Bobby Kennedy that he feels so strongly that they're uh, they're going to do that this time around. If you have questions. We've got hopefully answers. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 800-848-9222. Tony Lyons, the president and publisher of Skyhorse Publishing and the co-chair of the Super PAC American Values 2024, which is supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill. Goodness is gracious, great balls of fire. I let you love, but I thought it was fine. You came along and moved me, honey. I've changed my mind, this world is fine. This is The Other Side of Midnight, joined in studio by Tony Lyons. Uh, Tony Lyons is the president and publisher of Skyhorse Publishing, which has published several titles by Robert Kennedy. And these days, he's the co-chair of the Super PAC American Values 2024, which is supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for president. Tony, uh, thanks for sticking around. I know it's a, a tough hour. And we are going to take your calls, 800-848-9222. What made you, I understand that you're friendly with Bobby Kennedy, I understand you published his books, but what made you decide to get so involved that you would actually co-chair a super PAC supporting him? You've never done anything like that before, have you? Never done anything like that before. 
I think we're at a turning point in world history, and I think that we need Bobby Kennedy to be president to kind of rescue us from the growing fascism in this country and all around the world where, you know, these big corporations have absolute control over government agencies and are and are sort of telling them what to do. And that's not what we signed up for in this country. So that, I think, is one of the big things that Bobby Kennedy would do right away as president. He would separate the government agencies from this corporate takeover. He would turn that around and let the American people really have a voice. The The next thing he would do is he would bring our soldiers home from multiple wars that we've been in these endless wars all around the world fighting for, you know, we don't really know what. And he would bring them back and have them help rebuild this country. So, you know, the New York Times pointed out a couple of months ago that 53% of the people in this country don't have $1,000 in the bank. That's just a shocking statistic for the richest, most powerful country on earth to have 53% not have $1,000. And then we're going and we're giving $200 billion to Ukraine to fight this proxy war. So, you know, we've been doing these kinds of things all around the world for decades now, and we just have to stop. And Bobby Kennedy will end that. How would you characterize the coverage of his candidacy by mainstream media outlets, uh, the New York Times, NBC News, other other so-called objective media outlets? So I think they're scared to death of Bobby Kennedy, because if the American public hears the things that he has to say, They're going to love him. They're going to want him to be their president. They're going to recognize that he's not anti-vaccine. He's not anti-anything. He's other than being anti-corruption. He wants to end the corruption, just like his father did. And that fear runs so deep right now that the Democratic Party is, you know, afraid to let him debate, uh, you know, President Biden. They are afraid to let any newspaper do a real interview with him. So all he gets is hit piece after hit piece. But his numbers are growing anyway, just like his book sales did. So they censored that in every way, and it sold 1.1 million copies. And, you know, they've been censoring his interviews, his debates, taking them off YouTube, you know, really trying to just shut him down. But they can't do it. His voice is too loud. It's too honest. He's the only honest politician out there, and he's getting through to the people of this country. He's got a couple of new books coming out with you guys, right? Yeah, he's got a terrific book coming out later this summer called The Wuhan Cover-Up. And that, I think, is going to be a book that blows the lid off this whole sort of conspiracy, you know, real conspiracy. So, you know, there's all this negativity towards the word conspiracy theory, but there really are conspiracies in this world. And this is one of them, you know, that it is clear. And when you read this book, you know, it's going to be really hard for anybody to not recognize that the Wuhan story is a story of a lab leak. And, you know, so all of the details behind that are covered in this book. And it's a it's a gigantic book. It's, you know, 500 pages long, over 200,000 words you know, thousands of citations. So this is a book that I think, you know, is going to have to be covered and people are not going to be able to hide this story from the public. And it's just a fascinating read. Let me ask you a a two-part question. One, uh, do you believe that Bobby Kennedy has a viable path to 
the Democratic nomination. You, you, let me ask you, let me begin with that one. Sure. So I think that the only thing standing in the way of Bobby Kennedy getting the nomination is all of these hit pieces, is the DNC trying to prevent him from, you know, having his voice heard. And I think that what's going to happen is that you're going to see from the speeches that he's giving, he's flying all around the country, he's going to the border, he's breaking news. I mean, he is on fire and he's connecting with the public. And I think that the thing preventing him is censorship. And, you know, if you get rid of the censorship, I think the American people won't stand for a situation where there's no real debate, no real primary, and where somebody who is really being honest, you know, doesn't have the platform to speak to the public. Here, part two of my question is this. Understanding that the incumbent president in, in both parties generally controls the the party apparatus, the nomination procedures in in every state and any challenger to an incumbent president, even if they're they're a hard boiled political veteran like a, a Ronald Reagan in 1976 or a Ted Kennedy in 1980 or a Pat Buchanan in 1992 has a very difficult time toppling a president of their own party. So many of the calls that I get on this program and so much of the social media correspondence that I've gotten about Robert Kennedy, some of his most enthusiastic supporters are independents and Republicans who aren't eligible to vote in a Democratic primary. And I'll be honest, I could conceivably vote for Robert Kennedy, and I'm not a uh, registered Democrat. I'm not able to vote. I think a lot of people would welcome his candidacy as an independent, obviously you can't speak for him, but as a supporter and as somebody that's really enthusiastic about his candidacy, how would you feel if he doesn't win the Democratic nomination, if he were to run as an independent candidate in the general election? I would start off by saying, you know, Bobby Kennedy is a lifelong Democrat and he believes in, you know, Democratic values. So, you know, he's a Kennedy Democrat. He's a Democrat who you know, would have been recognizable, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. But the Democratic Party has veered to the left. It's changed in, in fundamental ways. I mean, since when is the Democratic Party for censorship? Since when is the Democratic Party pro-war? You know, so you look at this kind of thing, you know, pro-war, pro-corruption, pro, you know, clandestine government agencies, pro-CIA, pro-FBI, you know, the Democratic Party always stood for questioning authority, questioning power and, and openness and dialogue. So Bobby Kennedy is a quintessential Democrat. But, you know, so I think we're going to have to see where the numbers go. But I think that if Bobby Kennedy ran against Donald Trump today, he would win. I think he did a good job explaining that he's the only one that can make the case against Trump, uh, against the lockdowns and a lot of the policies that were implemented while uh, Fauci was part of the Trump administration. So I think uh, I think there's reason there's good reason to think that 800-848-9222. What do you say to those, Tony, who say that um, Bobby Kennedy's conclusions? And I'm particularly curious about your answer to this, since you mentioned the thing that first attracted you to him was your shared concern about vaccine injuries. What do you say to people that say Kennedy's conclusions are not backed by science and that every reputable uh, scientific survey and scientist has dismissed the the links that Robert Kennedy has done, has made with things like uh, 
uh, autism and certain vaccinations and some of the other issues that he's raised with respect to the covid vaccine and things like myocarditis and other vaccine related injuries. I hear that from people constantly. What do you say to that sector of the listenership? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, this is a tough pill to swallow, but you have been subjected to the most powerful propaganda campaign in the history of mankind. So I'm not angry at you. I don't think Bobby Kennedy is angry at you. But, you know, you have been you are a victim of a propaganda campaign. And what you need is to listen to real debate. So when you read his next book coming out later this summer, which is Vaxxed, Unvaxxed, Let the Science Speak. You know, that's a real book on real science with peer reviewed studies, with blurbs from from famous doctors and scientists. So the point is that when there is such censorship of science, you can't know what the real science is. So, you know, Louis the 14th said, I am the king, you know, I am the state. And Dr. Fauci said, I represent science. And so he sort of posited science as something that was static. But any scientist will tell you, any intelligent doctor will tell you that science is not static, that science welcomes debate. That science wants you to look at new study time after time after time. So if Bobby Kennedy is wrong, tell us where he's wrong. What do you say? Talk to the left wing listeners that uh, are eligible to vote in a Democratic primary and they see Robert F. Kennedy Jr. going on Fox News, an institution they're deeply distrustful of, going on uh, talk radio and conservative talk radio programs, institutions they're deeply distrustful of, including uh, programs hosted by people like Steve Bannon. They see folks like uh, Roger Stone, who they uh, may dislike even more than Donald Trump, tweeting about how much they like Robert Kennedy and how he should be Trump's running mate. And a lot of people on the left have drawn the conclusion that Robert Kennedy is essentially being pushed into this by a a gaggle of right wing interests that uh, they feel will hurt Biden in the primary and make him a more vulnerable opponent for Trump in the general election. Respond to that criticism. So the people who are attacking Bobby Kennedy are using any method they can use to try to discredit him, except what they need to do. So if they think he's wrong, they should point out where he's wrong. That means don't call him a conspiracy theorist. Don't call him an anti-vaxxer. Tell us where his science is wrong. So this is just another part of that narrative that he's talking to Steve Bannon. He isn't talking to Steve Bannon. And if Steve Bannon likes him, that's great. If Donald Trump likes him, that's great. A lot of people on the right like him because he's for freedom of, of, of speech. The Democratic Party, like I said before, has always been for freedom of speech and should be for freedom of speech now. So I think that, that the truth is that he's been censored so much on the left that he has nowhere else to turn and he will talk to anybody who will listen. And he is talking to millions of people on the left and millions of people in the center and millions of people on the right. I mean, his his, uh, you know, polling now is 20 percent of Democrats. It's something like 30 percent of people who are not aligned and almost 40 percent of the Republican Party. So what that ought to tell Democrats is that he can win. And, you know, I don't think Biden can win right now. 
So, you know, that's an important question for Democrats to think about. Do they want a candidate who has a real voice, who's going to be honest with them, who has no conflicts of interest, and who is going to fight for them, fight for the middle class, fight for the soldiers who are fighting in these endless wars, you know, fight to rebuild this country. And, you know, if they think that, they will see that Bobby Kennedy is an incredibly accomplished, powerful you know, fighter for justice and that they should be excited to have a a, a real candidate who is going to travel the country, who is going to fight for their rights, you know, fight for all people on the right, on the left and on the center. So, yes, he's been on lots of those shows, but he's on those shows because the other shows won't right. let him on. Um, throw your headphones on. We'll try and take a couple of calls. If you want to call in with a question for Tony Lyons, 800-848-9222. Seven open lines. You can get right on 800-848-9222. Let me begin with John in Brooklyn. Uh, flip the left one over there a little bit. Yeah, there you go. John is in Brooklyn. John, uh, what's your question or your comment for Tony Lyons? I'm a Republican. I am uh, trained as an evolutionary biologist has worked in epidemiological research. Your buddy Bobby is a threat to our country. He's a dangerous science denialist. Three years ago in Samoa, he helped persuade the Samoans not to get vaccinated with measles. 500 people got very sick. 83 of them died. Many of them were kids. He's has, he and his buddy Andrew Wakefield, the disgraced British ex-doc, have the blood of thousands to tens of thousands around the world who listen to his to their vaccine safety lies. As far as I'm concerned, he should be facing trial right now, convicted and executed for his crimes against humanity. All right. Well, let me get Tony to respond. First. But go ahead. F- finish your... Uh, yeah, your so part. I think that, you know, like you said before, the First Amendment is so important And, you know, there are a lot of people who disagree on all of these things. And, you know, Bobby Kennedy often says, and it's true, that any major lawsuit where, say, the Monsanto lawsuits, for example, which, you know, Bobby Kennedy was able to get a $70 million judgment for a man who got cancer from glyphosate in Roundup. And in those trials, I can tell you that they had experts from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton on both sides swearing that Monsanto was, you know, doing everything right, that their product was not dangerous to anybody. And then you had the other side, Bobby Kennedy's side, where you had the same kinds of doctors, the same kinds of scientists from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton saying that Monsanto's product was killing people. So these are complicated issues. And the only way you have real science in this country is not by yelling at people, not by maligning people, not by censoring them. Right. It's by having full dialogue and debate so that we can get real answers. And science is about debate. Science is about getting into the furious debate where you let everybody have a platform and the smartest people and the most 
well done studies rise to the top. Not people who yell louder, not people who censor people, not right. propaganda folks call campaigns. For other folks' names. And that's one of the things I found so refreshing about Kennedy is, you know, for all the talk that he's a right wing, uh, right wing plot or a right wing troll or something along those lines. I think whether it was McCain in 2000, who was getting a lot of supports from Democrats and independents, or uh, Ron Paul in 2008, uh, running in the Republican Party, be getting a lot of support from uh, from Republicans uh, or from Democrats. I think that it's really encouraging that you see people inspired to want and get involved with someone on the other side of the political spectrum. Not something that should be should be viewed uh, suspiciously as some sort of a plot. Um, a lot of folks might be wondering, kind of how. How super PACs work in the post-Citizens United era. What are you going to actually be doing? What is uh, American Values 2024 going to be doing as this election unfolds? Yeah, so we're going to be doing a very wide range of things. Uh, we're setting up a website that's going to be really comprehensive. It's going to collect names. It's going to have all the stories, uh, you know, all of the things that are being censored in so many other places. And you know, we are we are going to, uh, you know, send out emails to millions and millions of people, send out texts to millions and millions of people. We're going to run big events all around the country. We're going to put up billboards all around the countries. We're going to place ads on any platform that will let us. So and then we're going to really try to amplify Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s, you know, messages because, you know, there is so much censorship. And I personally believe that it should be unconstitutional, and I believe that it actually is unconstitutional to censor a presidential candidate, whether it's Donald Trump or Bobby Kennedy or anybody else, and that we need people to have access to information in this country. So this super PAC, you know, is going to make sure that the American public hears Bobby Kennedy's voice. And then, you know, once they hear it, they can decide for themselves. They don't need the government to tell them that it's misinformation. They don't need anybody to decide for them what's true and what isn't true. I read that uh, you guys are doing pretty well in the fundraising department, that over $10 million of contributions have already come in. Yeah, and in the last week we have gotten one more seven-figure donation. Wow. So I think we're, we're going to raise $100 million to get this message out. And, you know, I think that's going to play an important role in Bobby Kennedy becoming president, because like I've said, people hear his message. They will vote for him. One thing that I was a little surprised by, and maybe you can enlighten me on this, is Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, has endorsed Robert Kennedy. He says he's all in for Robert Kennedy. I view Jack Dorsey and his leadership of Twitter as being one of the big problems with Internet censorship and social media censorship. They wouldn't even allow articles about the Hunter Biden laptop to be uh, posted on Twitter during the campaign from reputable news organizations. How does Jack Dorsey go over uh, from presiding over and inventing that company to all of a sudden supporting the candidate that's the antithesis of big tech censorship. Yeah. So, you know, personally, I don't really blame the big tech companies because I think that there was such incredible pressure from the government that the government was basically threatening big tech companies, that they said they were going to do it. They actually did it. There's all kinds of proof that they did it, that they embedded, you know, FBI agents in big tech companies to monitor them, you know, so these 
kinds of censorship, you know, happened despite what the big tech companies, in my view, would have wanted because they recognize that they represent the entire country, you know, that half of the people who are on their platforms are on the left and half are on the right. So they have no incentive to censor people. But the government forced them and pushed them and threatened them, wrote letters. I mean, we, we, we have lots of the data showing the pressure that was put on these companies. Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman. Hey, Frank. Hi, Mr. Lyons. Um, I've seen Robert F. Kennedy Jr. speak at, uh, it was at an anti-mandate rally in Times Square a couple of years ago, it was, and I saw a unity of uh, mainline conservatives like me with people in the middle, and uh, he had us all in tears. The only thing that I am concerned with is his voice. And I pray to God every day to heal his voice, to make his voice as strong as perhaps as you and Frank's. And um, that's the only thing I think would hold him back. Yeah. What about that, Tony? Some people have raised, even people that like his message, like it sounds like Norman does. Some people have raised concerns about his voice. Uh, look, in the era where a majority of Americans have a television, we've never even elected a bald man. Uh, a lot of people have said that Franklin Roosevelt wouldn't have been able to get elected in a television era because he was in a wheelchair. And who knows what would have happened if we would have missed out on his leadership during World War Two. People, rightly or wrongly, do cast votes for superficial reasons. And if someone doesn't look or sound like a president, they may not be, uh, I don't know, they may not be willing to take a chance on them. How do you see his voice playing into this role? Is that a handicap at all? So I don't think that it is. I mean, I think that, you know, he's had trouble with his voice, but I think that his voice is getting stronger and stronger. And, you know, it has such passion. And he's pushing through this problem, just like he's pushed through all kinds of other problems in his life. But when you talk about physical health, I think that Americans look at Bobby Kennedy and when they see him, I mean, he is in exquisite physical health. He is a model for health. So, you know, we have not had a president or a senator or anybody in real power in this country who's been in as good physical shape as Bobby Kennedy is. And, you know, I think that that's a big reason why he's going to be an incredible campaigner and that he's going to connect with the people in these in this country, that he's had problems in his life, all kinds of problems, and he has fought through all of them. And his voice is sort of a metaphor for that. It's another thing that he's fighting through, and it's getting stronger and stronger, and it's getting through to people. The um, If people are interested in learning more about uh, what you're doing at American Values 2024 or if they want to help out in your efforts, what's the best thing for them to do? I know you said you're developing a website, but where can they go to be kept informed or to pitch in? Yeah, so we have a website called AmericanValues2024.org, and I would really recommend that that people go there. It's a pretty good website now. Give me two or three weeks, and I, it's it's going to be – the best website out there. It's it's going to have all of the information that you're going to need, and it's going to follow everything Bobby Kennedy's doing, show you all of the events, show you all the shows that he's been on, all the censorship of the shows that he's been on. So, you know, that's the best way. And and that has a, a um, icon on it where you can donate money, and, and, and there's a way to contact me through there too. So, you know, 
that's the best place. And I would say, you know, follow him, listen to him and listen to what he's really saying, not what people say about him, mm. you know, but listen to what he really says. Listen to the three hour Joe Rogan, you know, uh, piece with him. You know, that's just an incredible three hours that will tell you so much more than you could possibly learn from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times. All of these places that are just running these incredibly sloppy hit pieces. What did you make of that uh, David Remnick interview on WNYC? Did you see that? That was pretty adversarial. Yeah, what I thought about that was that, you know, it was a good sign. So, you know, the you know Democratic Party for a while now has been claiming that free speech is a bad thing and that if you interview somebody, you know, you're giving an endorsement of them, even if you disagree with them, even if you beat them in an argument, uh, you know, that giving somebody a platform is a form of an endorsement. So I think that what they're realizing is that Bobby Kennedy is too good a candidate to play those kinds of games with, that they have to engage with him. So I think that's the first step toward the DNC allowing Bobby Kennedy to debate, you know, President Biden and when that happens, I think the American people are going to recognize that Bobby Kennedy versus Donald Trump is a match that the Democratic Party can win. And the current Joe Biden versus Donald Trump is a battle that the Democratic Party can't win. I'll end with this, uh, Tony. Uh, you were kind enough to invite me to a uh, book party for Oliver Stone at your house six years ago and uh, had a great time. Got to have a, a nice chat with one of my heroes, Professor Stephen Cohen, who unfortunately is no longer with us. And I, especially when there's times like this, I really wish he were. But um, is the reason that I have not been invited back to any subsequent parties because I took far too many of those banana puddings from Magnolia Bakery that you put out? That's exactly the reason, you know, um, you know, we, we, we had videotape and we counted how many you ate. And I said to myself, I cannot invite this guy to another party. There's no way that I can do it. I just can't afford it. Understandable. Uh, understandable. Tony, I love what you're doing with respect to Skyhorse. It is the only publishing house, I think, in America that uh, publishes books on uh, vaccine safety to the impeachment of Donald Trump to fly fishing and and gardening. So it is a diverse a publication, a diverse publishing house in the most important sense. There's every point of view represented. People could check out some of the titles at skyhorsepublishing.com. It's always great to have you in studio. Let's do this again. Love to. Thanks so much. Thank you. And this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, uh, the All-Star Game took place in Seattle 
last night. And I'll be honest with you, since I'm a baseball fan, I obviously I don't follow baseball as closely as I did when I was 14, when I think I could tell you the uh, entire both 25-man and 40-man roster of both of New York's baseball teams, and uh, as well as who was leading in every major statistics uh, on both pitching and batting in both leagues. But I still really just love the game, and I try to watch as many games as I can and listen to as many games as I can, but I'm not as successful as I'd like to be because I have a lot of other stuff going on and certainly a lot of other interests. But I have not really found myself caring much about the All-Star game, honestly, for the last 10, 15 years, maybe more. You know, it started with interleague play. When interleague play started, you got to see these matchups that you never got to start. You never got to see. See, back in the day, it was something special to see Dwight Gooden pitching to Jose Canseco because you never got to see that during the regular season. To see uh, Hideo Nomo uh, pitching to Mark McGuire when McGuire was still in the American League. Now you get to see these matchups all the time with interleague play. And then they tried to reinvent um, re-energize interest in the All-Star game by making it so that whatever league won the All-Star game would have home field advantage in the World Series. It absolutely didn't work. So I've been one of these people that I'm less and less interested in it. But I mean, let me put it on. I feel like I owe it to baseball because baseball has brought me so much pleasure and so much joy over the years. I owe it to baseball to watch while I'm preparing for the show and watching. So I put it on and I'm struck by a couple of things. One... I don't like that the National League and the American League each have their own uniforms now. It used to be each player would wear, say, a Yankee uniform or an Angels uniform. Now they just wear the cap for the team they're representing, and they wear an NL uniform or an AL uniform that's all all the same. The other thing that I'm not sure if I like is the conversations with players on the field while the game is going on. The announcers have a conversation with the center fielder. Hey, well, how do you like to be uh, out there with Freddie Freeman? Oh, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy is in the middle of supposedly concentrating on the game. I don't love the fact that it's mic'd up. But on the other hand, I do kind of like it because it's a different look at the game that you never saw. So I prepared to watch this game with uh, very little expectation of anything. And I was blown away from the very first play and the very first inning. The incredible, the the first inning began with two incredible plays. What definitely would have been extra base hits robbed by some incredible play in the outfield. And I was very pleased to see the National League win. I'm a National League fan. I always support the National League. And they snapped a massive losing streak, and they beat the American League 3-2 to two behind an Elias uh, Diaz home run. So the National League won. I have some other thoughts on the All-Star game. I may share them throughout the course of the day. Keep asking questions. The Other Side of Midnight. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I think we're all familiar with the actor Jonah Hill. It's hard to believe it now, but he's been a major player on the Hollywood scene for the last 20 years. He, I think most people, at least I first came to know him, and I think I speak for most people, they first came to know him when he was in the film Superbad, which I want, I went to because it was a friend's birthday and he wanted to see it. And I had very low expectations. Superbad is terrific. It's very funny. And I think it holds up very well 20 years later. But he's done a lot of other films, uh, mostly comedies, but a couple of dramas. He did Funny People, which is sort of a dark comedy, a dramatic comedy. Very good. He did Hail Caesar, which is very quirky, very interesting. He did This is the End, which is it's hysterical. He did War Dogs, which is very good. He did um, Get Him to the Greek, which you know I love. The Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio. And probably his best role, I think he was actually nominated for Academy Award, was Moneyball, opposite uh, Brad Pitt. So anyway, he was in a relationship with a woman named Sarah Brady. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't follow any of these celebrity relationships too closely. So I didn't know anything about Sarah Brady. I don't know anything about Sarah Brady. And I'll be honest, I don't care anything about Jonah Hill's personal life, who he's dating, who he's not dating. If he makes a movie that's, uh, that's funny, that's good, that's interesting, I'll go and see it or I'll make an effort to go and see it. And if he doesn't, then I won't. It has no impact on me who he's dating or what kind of relationship he's in or anything of that nature. So over the weekend, Sarah Brady, a surfer, a law student, and the ex-girlfriend of Jonah Hill accused the actor of emotional abuse. And she released a series of private text messages that they exchanged while dating from August of 2021 to early 2022. And I looked at some of these text messages, not all of them, because I'll be honest, I don't have that great of an interest in the story, meaning the story of a, a relationship gone bad, because everybody's got relationships that haven't worked out. And some of the text messages do come across as a little controlling, but only a little bit. It's not as if he's threatening to kill her, not as if he's threatening to assault her, not a threat, not threatening to rape her. I think the worst kind of thing that he says is he asks her to take down some photos of her ass in a thong and urged her to stop modeling and to cut out relationships with men and unstable women. He's basically trying to tell her what to do. But when you look at it, he does it in a very gentle way. For instance, this is a text message. And I'm not going to go through all these, but I'm just going to provide this as context. Plain and simple. This is Jonah Hill to this this woman he was dating. Plain and simple. If you need colon, and then it's a list, surfing with men, boundaryless, inappropriate friendships with men, to model, to post pictures of yourself in a bathing suit, to post sexual pictures. Friendships with women who are in unstable places and from your wild recent past beyond getting a lunch or coffee or something respectful, I'm not the right partner for you. If these things bring you to a place of happiness, I support it. And there will be no hard feelings. These are my boundaries for romantic partnership. 
my boundaries with you based on the ways these actions have hurt our trust. Now, she is saying that these text messages are emotionally abusive and that this is a warning to all girls. If your partner is talking to you like this, make an exit plan. Love y'all. Call me if you need an ear. She posted all of these private text messages on social media as an example of what she called emotional abuse. He does come across as a little insecure in these text messages, but I got news for you. Almost everybody that lives their life in the public eye is pretty insecure. And he does come across as a little manipulative. He does come across as if if he's trying to take her down a notch in order to maybe boost himself up a little bit. And I, I wouldn't like it if someone talked to me that way. And I would I, I'm sure there are text messages that I've sent to people that come across as disrespectful or hurtful. I'm sure there are because you don't know what frame of mind someone's texting in. Is someone, I'm not saying this was the case with Jonah Hill, but I'm just thinking in my own case, am I texting after drinking three martinis or am I texting after I haven't slept in 20 hours? There are all sorts of situations where you send a text message to someone that you believe that you can trust that you, um, you know, would have worded differently had you known it was going to be public or had you known it was going to be more closely scrutinized. But. His text messages and her decision to post this on Instagram and social media, it feels really inappropriate. And she posts this first round of text messages, and then it gets a little bit worse because she then goes and releases another installment of these text messages and insists that they were sexting just before he started dating his now girlfriend, Olivia Millar, who gave birth to their their first son last month. And this woman, Ms. Brady, continues to unload on Instagram, including posting alleged screenshots of Jonah Hill saying her releasing intimate texts is a huge triggering violation for me and a breach of trust as a friend. Now, I really think this is inappropriate. And then when she's posting these text messages, she's adding in her own commentary and her own captions like, I don't care for your misogyny or by these people. He meant any friend of mine that he hadn't personally approved of. Now, I get why she didn't like why he was talking to her, but she's out of the relationship. I don't think it's up to her to start doing PSAs uh, to protect other people that might be in bad relationships all the while committing character assassination against somebody that she was either in a relationship with or at least a good friend to for many years. And I don't think this is appropriate at all. And for all the scrutiny that people got during the Me Too era for speaking inappropriately, behaving inappropriately, treating people inappropriately at the workplace. I don't know when we decided that this was okay, that you could share private text messages 
with the world and have the media write about it just because the boyfriend that you felt did you wrong happens to be a celebrity. I don't think that's right at all. And I would say this if this was it was anybody that was famous. And it has nothing to do with it being Jonah Hill. I don't care about Jonah Hill one way or not or another. But she's putting this out there and she says sharing this publicly now because keep it because keeping it to myself was causing more damage to my mental health than sharing it could ever do. Really? Really, Miss Brady? I mean, you want to share that with a friend, a family member, with a therapist, with a counselor, someone that you trust? By all means. But for this to now be poured over by millions of people, it strikes me as wrong. It strikes me as trying to go out of your way to hurt someone badly that you feel has hurt you. And it strikes me as a way, and pardon my being cynical here, it strikes me as a way for you to try to get famous by attacking someone who's famous and that you happen to have damaging information on. I think this whole endeavor, I'm not excusing the way he spoke to her, but I think this whole endeavor is very low rent on her part. And I think this is totally uncalled for. And I hope this doesn't start a new trend of people sharing text messages with celebrities that they think are going to make the celebrities look bad. What do you think? Are you with me on this or do you think she did the right thing? by sharing these text messages as a warning sign for other girls that might be in similar relationships. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. And this whole thing, now again, th- this is what I really dislike about the Me Too era. It's like when there's when there's um, sharks in the water, right? One person, one shark goes after some some chum. They throw something in the water. The shark goes after it. All of a sudden, other sharks go after it. I don't know if that's how sharks actually behave, but that's what I remember from the film Jaws. This whole thing has now prompted former Nickelodeon star Alexa Nicholas to accuse Jonah Hill of kissing her without consent when she was 16 and he was 24. Now, if that's true... Uh, which I have no idea if it is, that's completely gross and inappropriate. But why did Alexa Nicholas feel the need to jump on the bandwagon here after he was already been at- being attacked by someone else for conduct that happened 15 years ago? 15 years ago. Again, I'm not excusing the behavior of a of a bawdy 24-year-old who all of a sudden finds himself famous, but I, I really don't think... The way to handle that, if you were wronged, you were kissed by a 24-year-old actor when you were 16, is to wait 15 years until he's publicly attacked by someone else as a creep and then to jump on the bandwagon. I, I really I, I really feel bad for Jonah Hill here. And what makes this worse, though, is this is not unique. Recently. There's an influencer on TikTok by the name of Sophia Culpo. She posted messages between her and her her ex-boyfriend, who happens to be Jets receiver Braxton Barrios, 
whom she accused of cheating on her. I don't think that was appropriate either. But the difference is that influencers like Sophia Culpo, they make romance and talking about their relationships a big part a big cornerstone of their online presence. If, you know, I talk about my personal life and my family on the radio all the time. If, uh, you know, if a family member were to pass away, God forbid, or if my wife and I were to get divorced, God forbid, I don't think it would be out of the blue for me to mention that because I mention what's going on in my family life all the time. But I still don't think what she did was, was right there. I think... Um, I think when you are taking private text messages and outing them to the world like this with the person's name, I think you really pretty quickly lose the moral high ground. And I question, again, I don't know Miss Brady, she could be the best person in the world, but I question if she was really doing this with the sort of noble intentions that she's making it sound like. Jonah Hill to me seems like a guy who happens to be famous. He's a a young man and is just trying to date. And the, the, the way that couples talk with one another, especially when things aren't going well, I'm sure you know this from your own experience. It's not pleasant. It can often be downright ugly. And all things being considered, I don't think these text messages are that bad. They're not good, but they're not that bad. And I just wonder about a person that saves these kind of text messages and then outs them to the world two years later. I just, I, I totally disapprove of this. I'm curious what you think, and perhaps you can persuade me otherwise. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Let me begin with JR in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Frank, good morning. morning. Um, from the outside looking in, it looks like these two young ladies are fading stars, if any, who attached to Jonah Hill, who is a superstar. And like you said, they, you, they're trying to squeeze out whatever they can from him uh, so that their public persona can be raised so that their, you know, the spotlight can stay on them for a little while that's basically reflecting off of Jonah Hill. And like, you just made a great point. I could only imagine if conversations my wife and I had had over text messages sound absolutely terrible. The words we use toward one another are absolutely terrible. And 99.9% of the time, when I come through the door, I tell her I love her and it's great to see her. Right, right. And and that's not... This isn't the real world. Right. It's not the real world, like even even for yourself and for people listening, it's this isn't the real world. This is Hollywood continuing to be Hollywood and people needing that five minutes of fame and they'll they'll suck it out of any port that they can. JR, thank you. Uh, You are watching in real time what some people are saying is the canceling of Jonah Hill. And he has really spent the last few years cultivating an image centered around self-care, self-work. He's talked publicly about issues that he's dealt with, like anxiety, mental health, his struggles with body image. He came across as a very progressive kind of guy. The Forward, the Jewish newspaper, The Forward, 
described him as the iconic nice Jewish boy. A little neurotic, a little nebbish, but funny, successful and self-aware and making and working on himself in therapy to boot. And he even made a documentary about his therapist. But since Sarah Brady, his ex-girlfriend, has released these screenshots of these text messages between the two in which Hill demands that he's that she stops posting pictures of herself in bathing suits uh, and polices her friendships with men and women. The, I people on both sides are up in arms. I think that this uh, is a tremendous invasion of privacy. Other people think that this reveals clearly abusive behavior. You know, I'm just thinking I've dated women that have said the same things to me, obviously with some of the genders reversed, but there's some of the same things to me that Jonah Hill is saying to his girlfriend. I didn't feel it was emotional abuse. I felt this is not a kind, the kind of person I should be dating. And you know what? I stopped dating them. You move on. If you're in a relationship and someone doesn't act the way you want to act, and I think to some extent that's what Jonah Hill is telling her. You move on. You don't save text messages for years so that you can post them to Instagram to 2 million followers. I think it's wildly inappropriate. Where uh, where do you come down on this, Mr. Uh, Matt Blaze? I don't think anything he said in those messages was wrong, at least from what you read. It is exactly what you described as the, he's saying, this is who you are. I don't like it. If you want to do this, fine, but I don't want to be a part of it. And yet you just move on and go on with life. It is a way for her to just be famous Nobody knows who she is. Now they do. But now I wonder if she's even thinking about the repercussions that, A, I think this makes her look bad. It doesn't make him look bad to me. I just think, yeah, was it good? Uh, no. Would I have, Would I personally have written that in a text message? No. That's a conversation I think you actually have with somebody face-to-face. You don't write in a text, if you want to do this, 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 and this, and this, then I'm not the one for you. I think that's a conversation you have in person. Well, what about her, just to play devil's advocate here, and I think we're on the same page, but what about her argument that this is kind of a warning sign to girls? Like, for instance, this is what she wrote after, and again, there's a lot of text messages that she shared. I'm not going to go through these all, but this is one of the things that she wrote. She said, I, too, struggle with mental mental health, but I do not use it to control people like he did to me. It's been a year of healing and growth with the help of loved ones and doctors to get back to living my life without guilt, shame, and self-judgment for things as small as surfing in a swimsuit rather than a more conservative wetsuit. And I'm sure there's still much more healing from this abuse ahead of me. What about the fact that she's saying, hey, if if someone's treating you this way, you need to craft an exit plan? But I, I don't think what, what she what he said was controlling it was, this is what I prefer, and if you want to live your life this way, go ahead. I just don't want to be a part of it. That's not like him saying, don't do this. You shouldn't do that. It didn't come off that way. It came off of him telling her, this is what I don't like, and if you want to do it, it's okay. Do your thing, but I don't want to be involved with you if that's what you're going to do. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, no, I don't either. I don't either. Someone who always has a lot of wisdom when it comes to relationships is Lisa in Connecticut. Hello, Lisa. Lisa, yeah, we got you. Really on. Hey, Matt, I think you're 
totally on point with that. Okay, so you know, you know, I've been in the entertainment world, and it's it's hard dating, right? I've had guys do that to me, the exact same thing, but I would never ever blast those personal messages like that to go get clout like that. Okay, I think that if you want to go on Twitter and say. Hey, ladies, you know, maybe, you know, don't let somebody tell you what to do. Fine. Well, sure. Don't go blasting right. somebody out. You know what I mean? I think that's incorrect and it's inappropriate. Jonah Hill is really an amazing star, like we all know. And, you know, I, I just think she's trying to get clout. And, you know, that's right. Everybody has the right to say whatever, but I don't think that you should be posting those messages that, that's in your personal life. I've had guys literally say the same thing to me that they can't handle how many people I know, how many guy friends I have. Oh, you got to go on a bikini shoot. I have a bikini model. This and that. They can't handle it. They can't come to the gig because, who oh, who's that guy giving you a kiss on the cheek? Did you worry with him? You know, I've had to deal with all of that stuff in the entertainment world. But being an adult, have that conversation to yourself right. in private and keep it moving. Yeah, well said, Lisa. Well said. Hey, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey everyone, it's me, Ron Albanese, and it's summertime. That means it's butter time, sunshine, and good time. This is the great Ron Albanese singing Sunshine and Good Time. Ron's been on uh, on the show before. He's been a guest in studio, brought in his guitar and performed for us in studio. He was terrific. And uh, really one of the best children's and family entertainment personalities around. And uh, if you want to learn more about him, or we keep an autographed photo of him in uh, in the control room. If you want to learn more about him, you can uh, certainly do so by going to his website, ronalbanese.com. There's links to his YouTube channel on there and uh, and a lot of other stuff. He's a great guy and uh, was a great guest on the show. So I'm glad he has a new song out for summer. Very perfect for July. You know, it's funny. Whenever I... <laughs> it's just... I think if you listen to this program for any length of time, you know the bizarre manner in which my brain works. Every day for the last 12 days that we've been in July, I have been thinking about that term in July. Can you emphasize in before July? And the reason I ask that question is because one of the greatest pieces of audio tape in history, in my book anyway, is Orson Welles recording commercials for things like frozen peas. I am an Orson Welles super fan. I love Citizen Kane. I love Touch of Evil. I love The Third Man. I love even the films that nobody liked. 
I loved uh, Casino Royale, his role in that, and I loved him as a personality. But the thing about Orson Welles that I love is, is I just love his voice, and I love the way that he thinks, he says things. And a lot of times, I'll just start doing portions of of this recording that I'm about to play for you, and I'll slip into Orson Welles, and my wife and whoever whoever I'm with will have no idea what I'm what I'm doing. So sometimes um, <laughs> I'll say, my wife will say something like, "Do you want to do this?" And I'll say, "Yes, always." And she looks at me, "Why are you saying it like that?" It's because of frozen peas. So this was from between 1969 and 1970. See, what Orson Welles would do, he was constantly looking for money. And he was always doing commercial stuff so that he could fund the kind of artsy projects that he wanted to fund. He would go and do uh, a, the voiceover for a Transformers movie. In exchange, so that he can go and uh, make an independent film of a Shakespearean play in Europe, things like that. And he was always hard up, so he would do commercials for things like wine. You remember the great Paul Masson commercials? Paul, I would we hear it. Paul Masson says, "Drink no wine before it's time." And he would do commercials in order to fund his real passion, which is making the kind of movies that he wanted to make. That weren't dependent on uh, the studio. You know, it's funny. About three years ago, the his last movie just came out. You know what it's called? It's on Netflix. It's um, it's on Netflix. It, it was sort of recut and re-edited. It's called The Other Side of the Wind. The Other Side of the Wind. It's it's a little weird. It's a little weird. It's um. It has very good parts to it. I think they call that a credet's egg, which it has some good parts to it, but it's just on the whole not uh, a curate's egg, where it has some good parts to it, but eh, it's not wholly good. So anyway, uh, he's recording some commercials. This is probably in the early seventies, maybe even a little later than that. And he is he flies into a rage because the people are trying to direct him, and I think every great voiceover artist and every great actor has moments like this and this is a moment that orson wells or you're talking other actors people like william shatner they've gone through things like this they never expected this to be played for audiences and in that respect it is kind of similar to the jonah hill situation but since we're talking since we're in july listen to orson wells and how he takes direction when doing a commercial we know a remote farm in lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. You really mean that? Uh, yeah, I'd say in other words, I'd, I'd start half a second later. Don't you think you really want to say July over the snow? Isn't that the fun of it? It's, it if you can make it almost when that shot disappears, it'll make my... I think it's so nice that, that you see a snow-covered field and say every July, peas grow there. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. We're not even in the fields, you see. Yeah, we are. We're talking about them growing, and she's picked them. Yeah. <coughs> what? July. I don't understand you. Then when must what must be over for July? Um, when we get out of that snowy field. When I was out, we were onto a can of peas, a big dish of peas. When I said in July. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, always. Yes. I'm always, always. past that. You are. 
Yes. Well, that's about where I stay in July. You have to find a bit in. In July. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry. Um, There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence with in and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say in July. And I'll on you. That's just idiotic if you'll forgive me by saying so. That's just stupid. In July. I'd love to know how you emphasize in and in July. Impossible. Meaningless. I think all they were thinking about was that they didn't want to. He isn't thinking. Listen, tell me just the one last thing. Yeah. And it was my fault. I, should, I said in July. If you can leave every July. You didn't say it. He said it. Your friend. Every July? No, you don't really mean every July. But that's a bad copy. It's in July. Of course it's every July. You know, I, I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, when they give me a commercial to record, I just read what's on paper. <laughs> I don't, I'm starting to think maybe that's why Orson Welles is Orson Welles and Frank Morano is Frank Morano. Maybe I need to be a little bit more of a, uh, a perfectionist and give people a hard time when things are, are miswritten. Much directing around here. Norway. Fish fingers in Norway. Fenders Norway. We know a certain fjord in Norway near where the cod gather in Great Shoals. There, Jan Stangelens. Fraction more on the wall that shows things. You roll it around very nicely. Yeah, roll it around and I have no more time. You don't know what I'm up against. Because it's full of, of, of things that are only correct because they're grammatical, but they're tough on the ear. You see, this is a very wearying one. It's unpleasant to read. Unrewarding. Unrewarding. Because Findus freeze the card at sea and then add a crumb crisp, crumb crisp coating. Uh, that's tough, crumb crisp coating. I think, no, because of the way it's written, you need to break it up because it's not, it's not as conversationally written. What? Take crumb out. Take, take crumb out. Good. Here under protest is beef burgers. <laughs> we know a little place in the American far west where Charlie Briggs chops up the finest prairie fed beef and tastes. This is a lot of shit. You know that. You want one more? More on what beef? You, you missed the first beef, but you can beef. Let me listen. You're emphasizing very safe. But you can't emphasize beef. That's like he's wanting me to emphasize in before July. Come on, fellas, you're losing your heads. I wouldn't direct any living actor like this in Shakespeare. Well, you do this. It's impossible. Well, you did six last year, and by far and away the best, and I know the, the reason. The right reading for this is the one I'm giving you. At the moment. I stand. Twenty times more for you people than any other commercial I've ever made. You are such pests. Now, what is it you want? Nothing. In your depths of your ignorance, what is it you want? Whatever it is you want, I can't deliver because I just don't see it. That was absolutely fine. It really was. You, you, no money is worth it. And he storms out. I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, um, I don't think anybody is um, is comparing Jonah Hill to Orson Welles. Although, look, Jonah Hill was nominated for an Academy Award. I think the uh, the only time Orson Welles was nominated, and he might have been nominated multiple times, Jonah Hill. But the only time Orson Welles was nominated, he um, might have been for writing. He might have gotten nominated for the Third Man. I have to look that one up. But the the Academy and Orson did not have the the best relationship. So we were talking about the situation with him and with Jonah Hill and his ex-girlfriend who has decided to publish. Yes, he was nominated. He was nominated for Citizen Kane, best original screenplay, best actor and best director in 1942. Didn't win any of them. 
But he decided this woman decided to publish Jonah Hill's private text messages. And she says she did this as a warning sign to other girls. Jonah Hill nominated for Best Supporting Actor for an Academy Award twice, 2014 and 2012. I'm curious what you think about this whole thing. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning. Morning. Um, just quickly on the ad uh, thing that you just played, I think they should have fired Mr. Wells and hired John Houseman because he was a contemporary of Orson Wells and apparently did a lot of voice work as well. I don't know if you remember his, they made their money the old-fashioned way, they earned it. Yeah, ads. yeah, yeah uh, I do. Yeah, so, oh, okay, so yeah, they should have ditched uh, Mr. Wells. But anyway, um, on the on the topic at hand, as someone who has a relative who's employed these type of tactics on his girlfriends many times and has witnessed this type of behavior, um, this is classic controlling passive-aggressive behavior on the part of uh, Jonah Hill, who I'm not actually very familiar with. But um, I warned my niece when she started dating, if a boyfriend starts to tell you who your friend should be or how you should dress or anything like that, ditch them immediately. Because if he was like that in text messages, I can only imagine what he was like when they were together alone. That is classic emotionally abusive behavior. And I wouldn't expect most guys to recognize it. But unfortunately, I had the uh, ability to witness it firsthand many times with my older brother. So I know exactly how these people operate. And I feel sorry for that poor woman. And I'm sure she does need therapy because most of my brother's ex-girlfriends needed therapy after he was done with. Them. So you think um, you th understanding everything that you said about uh, about controlling relationships and things of that nature. Do you think that she did the right thing by choosing to share these text messages publicly and identify who they were from? What would be so wrong if she was genuinely concerned about making this a warning sign to other people in difficult relationships with um, making it from an unnamed person and just and blotting well, out the name, let's say? Well, let's be honest, Frank. If it was from some Joe Blow with, with no name, no one would pay attention to it. I'm, I'm Obviously, his fame had something to do with the fact she released this. Right. I'm not denying that. But I think there's an important lesson to be learned from those text messages. I think a lot of women, especially young girls, do not know how to recognize an emotionally controlling person until it's too late. And then they're in the middle. You know, they have kids with the person or whatever. If, if, if this can prevent one woman or young girl from ending up in a relationship with someone who's controlling and emotionally abusive, not physically, emotionally, then I think it's a, it's a good thing. And I, 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 I have much sympathy for this woman. And I hope that, you know, I hope her motives are as pure as she says. I have my doubts like you and, and, and um, your coworker do. But I think in the end, it does serve a, a service. Well, thank you, David. You know, he brings up an interesting point. One of the things that I hope people take from this, and this is a reminder to me, is you need to be careful with what you're texting. Because while you may think it's private, you may be texting something to someone that has an intention of sharing that with the world. So be careful with what you text message. And don't text anything that you wouldn't want to see in print and disseminated widely. That's my, that's my solemn advice.
800-848-9222. You know, speaking of Jonah Hill, that reminds me, Jonah Hill is in a lot of the uh, uh, Judd Apatow films. I mentioned Superbad. He's also in Knocked Up. He's in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. So on Friday night, last Friday night, I got to bed at, uh, went to bed at 8 p.m. So I found myself wide awake start, starting at around 3.40 in the morning. And I looked at what films I had in my Netflix queue because the way Netflix works, at least for until September 29th, is they you have three DVDs at home at all times and you watch a film and then you put it in the red envelope that it comes with, send it back, and then they send you the next film on your queue. I think it's the greatest system ever because you always have three new movies to watch. I don't know how this film ended up in my queue. I like Judd Apatow. So maybe I figured this would be a film that I would enjoy. It's I'm really behind on my cue. So this film came out 13 years ago. I don't know when I put it in there. I put a film in my queue called The 41-Year-Old Virgin Who Knocked Up Sarah Marshall and Felt Super Bad About It. That's the name of the film. It's a it's a film that's a parody of all the Judd Apatow movies, or at least all a lot of the main ones, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Superbad, and Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And I, look, I don't mind gross-out humor. I don't mind stupidity. I don't mind silly humor. This might have been the worst movie that I've ever seen. And I want to assure you, I had very low expectations for this film. I thought it's going to be dopey. It'll be stupid. Maybe you'll get a few laughs about out of it. I can honestly say in 80 minutes, and I was tempted to stop watching after about 20 minutes, but the one I said, all right, it's been sitting in my house for seven months. I better just finish it. Two, I did get a kick out of some of how the actors parroted some of the the actors that they were satirizing. Like they have an actor that mirrors the Jonah Hill character in Superbad, another actor that mirrors the... McLovin character in Superbad, who's now on that William Shatner show, Stars on Mars. But I was getting a little bit of a kick out of that and seeing how they did the voices and what it sounded like. I also wanted to see what other films they were satirizing. In 80 minutes of watching this film, it was, I did not laugh once. Not once. And I'm a fan of these movies that they were satirizing. It is totally unfunny. Totally unoriginal. It, there's no story. It's not entertaining. So if you're like me and a Judd Apatow fan and think, oh, well, that's got to be fun. It combines the elements of uh, three or four different Judd Apatow movies. It's got to be good. Do not be fooled. It is absolutely awful. The only people that I can see w- really kind of enjoying this film is if you're maybe 13 or 14 years old and really, really have your pubescent um, libido in full throttle. You'll do anything to see uh, a, a couple of seconds of a naked breast and, and you're an enthusiastic Judd Apatow fan and you've seen all the Judd Apatow movies and you're high on marijuana. That is the only scenario that I see someone enjoying this film. That being said, the the most clever thing about it was the title, The 41-Year-Old Virgin Who Knocked Up Sarah Marshall and Felt Super Bad About It. 
the movie itself is not very good. Not that is putting it politely. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, good morning. Morning. In my opinion, I can only speak to the uh, text that you read. In my opinion, she, the girl, what her name is, is extraordinarily insecure. She doesn't say it's not true what he's accusing her of. She seems to need the attention of every male, female, because he's accusing her of all that. In other words, how is she having a relationship with Jonah Hill? Does has any meaning, any romantic meaning whatsoever? But she needs the attention of everyone in the world, male and female. She doesn't say it's not true, but somehow he's bossing her around. Where's the controlling? I don't see any controlling from what you read there. Nothing. He's saying exactly what Matt Blaze basically said. He's saying this type of woman, he's not calling her a whore. He's just saying this type of woman is not for me. Right. Sorry. That's it. I don't see controlling. And I order a smidgen of controlling. That's the way I see it. So needless to say, you agree that uh, she shouldn't have shared these text messages as a warning sign. Absolutely not. Yeah. She really thinks people are going to see it that way. I guess David sees it that way. Some people might. Some women might, but I don't see any controlling whatsoever. And he, after which she goes and she wants to become famous. She needs the attention from everyone. Yes, a woman like that would do that. But notice she doesn't say what he's accusing her of is untrue. Right. So why would anybody want to have a relationship with her? Right. And I wouldn't. Yeah. And Charles, and thank you. Let's say he is being controlling. Should someone really be judged? by the worst moments of their relationship. You know, my wife reminded me, because I did this segment yesterday about uh, President Biden exploding at AIDS, and I, I said on the radio that I don't think my wife could, has ever heard me yell. And she said she has absolutely heard me yell. And then she mentioned three incidents where I was drunk to the point of being belligerent, and I screamed at... Her in one instance and another friend in another instance. I don't remember the, what the third instance was, but there were three instances where she's heard me angrily yell while I was drunk. Now, like Jr. was saying about his communications with his wife, if you only saw me in those three interactions and only heard about those three interactions, you would think I am the worst person in the world. However, in the course of the, you know, seven or eight years we've been together, that is three occasions in eight years. And it's not really representative of of our relationship or my behavior more generally. And I think that's the same with Jonah Hill here. You don't know how many good times they had, how many great text message exchanges. She's picking what she believes is the worst possible moments of their relationship and she's put it on display for the whole world to see and i don't think that's right in the least 800-848-9222 if you want to comment this is the other side of midnight straight ahead the other side of midnight it's the other side of midnight with frank morano Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match. Yeah. 
Summer in the City by the Lovin' Spoonful. Believe it or not, this is one of the favorite workout songs of legendary exercise impresario, Richard Simmons, who turns 75 years old today. He is 75 years old. Happy birthday, Richard Simmons. We haven't heard very much from Richard Simmons last few years. In fact, this was his whole podcast exploring the mystery of what happened with Richard Simmons. Turns out nothing happened. He just doesn't want to be bothered with anybody and wants to keep to himself. So good for him. Well, lo and behold, this is one of his favorite workout songs. 800-848-9222. You know, we were talking about movies and a bunch of other things. I saw yesterday the trailer for this forthcoming Napoleon film that Ridley Scott is making. And I do have to tell you, I'm pretty excited about this one. I'm going to make an effort to see Indiana Jones in theaters. But when Napoleon comes out, and it's not just because I'm interested in Napoleon. He's played by Joaquin Phoenix in this film because it is such a great story. The whole Napoleonic rise and fall and rise again and fall again. But I'm a big fan of Ridley Scott. I love all of his work. And this Napoleon film sounds, uh, looks and sounds pretty interesting. No doubt you've seen the chaos in the streets. We must make an example or France will fall. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? I promise you brilliant successes. Everyone, everyone around is. What is this costume you have on? This is my uniform. Everyone I led the French victory at Toulon. What is your name? Napoleon. As the course of my life just changed. Napoleon. I'm destined for greatness. But those in power will only see me as a sword. I suggest you take the throne as a king. Shall we vote? This learning has held the world hostage with his egotism and his lack of simple good manners. You think you're great? It's nothing without me. All of Europe is uniting forces against me. What's the outcome of this if you don't succeed? Your Majesty, we are discovered. Good. It's a trap! I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. <laughs> Doesn't that sound really good? 
I think it uh, looks really interesting. It's going to be out in November, but uh, that may seem like a long ways away. But November is going to be here before you know it. All right. I'm going to take your calls after the top of the hour. A lot of stuff to get to. A lot of interesting things happening. President Biden is in Lithuania. Sweden is poised to join NATO. That's exactly what we need. A NATO that's even larger with more and more countries in it. Ukraine is saying they want to be in NATO. And there is a gnat in this in this studio uh, that or some sort of tiny fly that I'm concerned is going to fly in my mouth because it's on the microphone. It's flying all over me. Now, I'm not afraid of bugs. I don't care about bugs. I don't want to swallow this bug. I know that's now all the rage in terms of bug based protein. No, thank you. No, thank you. I have not sworn off lobster yet. So I am not making the move to bug based protein yet. All right, until next hour, the words of the great Bob Barker. Help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, I've been looking for Jesus for a long time. I'm not tired yet. I've been looking for Jesus for a mighty long time. I'm not tired yet. Oh, I've been looking for Jesus for a long time. I'm not tired yet. I've been looking for Jesus for a mighty long time. I'm not tired yet. I'm not tired yet. Oh, no. I'm not tired yet. I'm not tired Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you're just tuning in, there is a fly or a gnat loose in the studio, and I, I, I can just see it flying into my mouth which is a fate I am hoping to avoid. And it's quite annoying, I must say. It's uh, And it's quite a distraction to have something buzzing around your face while you're trying to think of something intelligent or maybe even entertaining to say. It's really, really something. So I don't want to out him as listening to this show or... But see, there it is. There it is. It's a quick little bugger. All right, I don't want to expose him and ruin his reputation as listening to the show, but I just got an email from, of all people, Bernard Getz, uh, with the subject, how to get rid of gnat or mosquito, etc. He says, and this is good advice for all of you, you usually can't get rid of it by trying to smack it, but it is easy to catch by waving a vacuum cleaner hose in its vicinity. All right. So, uh, Kenneth, if you would grab the vacuum cleaner and bring it in here, we will in- we'll employ that strategy of uh, trying to use that vacuum cleaner hose to get rid of this gnat. All right. 800-848-9222. President Biden is in Lithuania. They're talking about 
NATO and the news came yesterday that Turkey has finally agreed to withdraw its objections to Sweden joining NATO. Finland wants to join. Sweden wants to join. And Turkey, which even though Turkey is this close to being a fundamentalist Islamic theocracy, I mean, they, there's a lot of great things about Turkey, but Erdogan is a virtual dictator. And he's gone from being a secular Muslim leader to someone that is very close to being an Islamic fundamentalist dictator. And yet he's our ally in NATO. Isn't that great that we're we're in bed with these folks? And if Turkey is attacked, we are bound by treaty, Article 5 to be precise, to treat Turkey as if America was attacked. I mean, that's just not doesn't sit right with me but that's the rules. Well anyway, Turkey has two main had two main objections to Finland and Sweden. One is that they said both countries had arms embargoes on Turkey. Go figure. The Swedes didn't want to sell weapons to Turkey? Oh my. What losers those people are. And secondly, uh, they complained the Turks that there were various terror groups in those countries as perceived by Turkey that were acting against Turkey's best interests. So anyway, President Biden was there yesterday talking about Article 5 and what an implementation of Article 5 might mean. Here's President Biden in Lithuania. We take, NATO takes, all of us take, Article 5 literally. One inch of NATO territory means we're all, all in the war together against whomever is violating that space. We're going to defend every inch of it. And I want to thank you, Mr. President, for hosting this historic summit at an important time. The first time that NATO leaders will meet with 31 together and looking forward to meeting very soon with 32 members. I want you to think about that. Because what President Biden stated is accurate. The Article 5 obligation that the United States has under NATO is to treat an attack on Turkey or Montenegro or soon to be Sweden as if the United States was attacked. Now, are you really willing to send American troops to go after whoever's attacking Montenegro? I vote no. And President Biden did say one thing yesterday and the previous day, which I agree wholeheartedly with. But I have no confidence that he's going to maintain this posture because to paraphrase uh, Ed Norton in Fight Club on a long enough timeline, Zelensky eventually gets everything that he wants. And Zelensky has been raising holy hell about wanting to join NATO. And Biden, to his credit, is saying no. We cannot have a country that's at war with Russia in NATO because then we're bound by Article 5 to pitch in and attack Russia. And we do not want the two largest nuclear powers on the globe in an armed conflict against one another. Now, again, he before three months ago, he didn't even want to send them. He didn't he didn't even want to send fighter jets. So I have no confidence that he's going to maintain this public stance. And I don't necessarily blame Zelensky for wanting to push for NATO membership because he wants the United States and her allies that are in NATO to be fighting with him for his government and his country's defense. I don't blame him. I think it's unwise, but I I don't blame him for wanting to pursue this strategy.
if we're going to have a discussion about adding Sweden and Finland and maybe even Ukraine to NATO, can we have a discussion about whether or not NATO should even still exist? And one of the things that really attracted me to President Trump during the 2016 campaign is that he said that during the campaign that he wanted to basically do away with NATO and leave NATO or reform NATO. And I gave him a lot of credit for having the gumption to to say that. And he nobody, no major party presidential candidate had ever said anything like that. And it was a shock to the system and people went nuts. And I thought it was great because let's look at NATO and what it means for the United States. First of all, why was NATO formed? NATO was formed basically um, to protect us from communism and the Soviet Union. It was formed, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was formed in 1949 to protect Europe against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union ended on December 25th, 1991. So NATO fulfilled its founding promise and its whole reason for existence 32 years ago. And the Warsaw Pact went away when the Soviet Union went away. NATO's still here. NATO, remember what the N and the A stand for, North Atlantic. NATO has far exceeded the geographical boundaries of the North Atlantic. It's expanded its membership to include countries in the Baltics, the Mediterranean, the Adriatic. And as an expansionist military organization, NATO has extended its military activities far beyond the North Atlantic. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Darfur, Sudan. NATO has really turned themselves into the world police. Wherever there's a problem, NATO will solve it. Genocide in your country, here comes NATO. I mean, it's just a little much. NATO, and this is one of the things that if you value American independence and you value American sovereignty, that you should take issue with. NATO operates under the color of international authority and it it threatens to bring conflict or or whatever to different parts of the world if different dictators or different despots don't do the right thing it has aggressively asserted itself relying on the assets of the united states of america without the united states of america nato as trump pointed out nato would fail to exist And NATO has repeatedly rejected diplomacy. It has had and demonstrated a commitment to regime change. It has supported ongoing escalation in places like Ukraine and elsewhere. NATO, uh, I know everyone loves to think of them with their blue little helmets as the good guys. NATO is a threat to peace. It is not a diplomatic It doesn't play a diplomatic role. NATO's, um, you want to talk about what they do. NATO 
is so globally pretentious. Seven, uh, two days ago, the Secretary General of NATO issued a warning to China. This is what he said. The Chinese government's increasingly coercive behavior abroad and repressive policies at home challenge NATO's security values and interests. Now, I'm no great lover of what the communist Chinese do in their own country or abroad, but China's not in NATO. Why should China care if what they're doing is a threat or a challenge to NATO's values and interests? They shouldn't. And yet the secretary general of NATO is going out there saying, how dare the Chinese challenge our values and interests? More than half of NATO's budget is paid for by the United States of America. Yet their leadership in Brussels presumes to implicate us and our military in a much wider war. Now, if you care about the Constitution, if you care about American jobs, that should be a matter of tremendous constitutional concern. And then we have uh, the the great Oz. What's behind the curtain of everything that's going on all over the world and all over the United States? The military-industrial complex. You see... NATO members are required to pay 2% of their gross national product for NATO membership. This has turned NATO into an international arms bazaar at the expense of what some of these countries might want to spend on their own people. Things like bridges, things like health care, things like roads. It has led to the militarization of Europe. Now, who benefits when all these countries are bound by treaty to spend 2% of their budget on the military? Who benefits? Weapons manufacturers. Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, and Lockheed Martin, and the people that get to sell these Air, uh, these fighter jets, these airplanes, these tanks to these NATO countries. It's always the military industrial complex. When you think it's not the military industrial complex, it is the military industrial complex. And that leads us to what's going on now with Ukraine. Put aside what, whatever you think of the Russia Ukraine conflict and what the United States role should be. Let's say you love the fact that the United States is backing Zelensky. You think Zelensky's a rock star and a great guy and that uh, Putin is this James Bond-style villain and he needs to be opposed and in the name of freedom we have to stand with Zelensky. Let's say that's all true. Well, U.S. officials confirmed over the weekend, and I talked about this with uh, Robert Kennedy on Monday, that they are planning to provide Ukrainian troops with cluster munitions. Do you know what cluster munitions are? They're controversial explosive weapons that have been banned by 123 countries and criticized by human rights groups all over the world for their tendency to 
oh, I don't know, indiscriminately kill civilians even long after hostilities have ended. And these cluster bombs were included in a new weapons package for Ukraine that was just unveiled over the weekend. These weapons are considered exceptionally dangerous for two main reasons. One, they're not precision weapons. They're instead designed to spread across a large area. That means they often kill unintended targets in the vicinity of a war zone. And what's more disconcerting is these the bomblets can fail to explode and then detonate months or years later, usually killing unintended consequence, uh, unintended uh, targets. So President Biden said that sending these weapons to Ukraine is a difficult decision. While White House officials have responded to criticism by noting the weapons they approve for Ukraine are newer versions that leave behind far fewer of these duds. The bomblets are also very small. So mishaps happen. And they can be colorful, which attracts children to pick them up and try to play with them, only to be maimed or killed by them. Just to give you an idea, in 2021, there were 141 casualties from cluster bomb remnants, 97% of whom were civilians. Two-thirds of those were children. Children. That's why 123 countries to ban, have, have not banned them. Well, thankfully, the three most important countries we're talking about here, Russia, the United States, and Ukraine, they're not on the list of countries that have signed the treaty to ban cluster munitions. And thankfully, the, some Democrats in Congress have actually broken publicly with Biden over this. And, of course, a lot of the congressional Republicans that are down for any war they can get into, they're all with Biden on this. So the U.S. had resisted supplying Ukraine with these, and the Biden administration's decision to include them, it fits a pattern of initial resistance and then allowance. We heard this with with long-range rocket launchers, F-16s, Abrams tanks, Patriot air defenses. The same thing happened. Uh, we're not going to give it. We're not going to give it. We're not going to get. OK, we'll give it. The New York Times criticized the flawed moral logic of sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. Uh, this is this is what the New York Times said, a big defender of Biden. They were very critical of him. This is a flawed and troubling logic in the face of the widespread global condemnation of cluster munitions and the danger they pose to civilians long after the fighting is over. This is not a weapon that a nation with the power and influence of the United States should be spreading. And now I know the Russians do this as well. And to me, I don't think that that makes it okay to spread the killing to more civilians and children. Patrick Leahy. Former Democratic senator from Vermont and current senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, they had an op-ed in the Washington Post. They wrote about why Biden is wrong to do this. This is a this is their words. This is a serious mistake. This is in the Washington Post. This is a serious mistake. We voted for billions of dollars in military aid for Ukraine and strongly believe we must continue to help the Ukrainian people defend themselves against Russian aggression. 
But supplying Kiev with cluster munitions would come at an unsupportable moral and political price. Knowing that these weapons cause indiscriminate terror and mayhem, both of us, like many others in the international community, have worked for years to end their use. They undeniably offer battlefield advantages, but using them would compound the already devastating impact of the war on civilians and Ukrainian troops with effects lasting for years to come. Listen to this. Listen to this line. In Laos and Vietnam, cluster munitions deployed over 50 years ago continue to maim and kill civilians. We're still seeing cluster bomblets from Vietnam and Laos explode. Each cluster bomb that opens in midair can release 72 small grenades to imp- to explode on impact. Let's say we send conservatively 100 cluster bombs to Ukraine. I imagine it'll be a lot more than that. That's 7,200 bomblets. And let's say there's a dud rate of two and a half percent. That's what the Pentagon is claiming. But the Russian bomblets that have been dropping, they have a dud rate of 40 percent. A dud is, again, a munition that doesn't explode and it's still active and could explode later. That amounts to around 180 unexploded landmines sitting in Ukrainian territory from just a 100 cluster bombs. Now, I understand why Ukraine wants these cluster munitions, and I believe the Ukrainian military leaders who think it will help them open up new angles for winning this war. But we're talking about a decision that is going to be felt for decades, well beyond the end of the war and potentially well beyond the borders of Ukraine. As uh, Isaac Saul wrote in um, the Tangle newsletter, and Isaac Saul is a big supporter of United States aid to Ukraine. This is what he wrote. The United States has the blessed and cursed position of being a world leader in all things war. The reality we face is that when ghoulish authoritarian leaders like Putin invade a sovereign country, we're expected to come to the rescue. It's also true that we sometimes act like like the authoritarian and ghoulish leaders, invading sovereign nations and absurdly concocted premises. This was an opportunity to distinguish ourselves morally from the same leaders we condemn. It was an opportunity to stake out a high ground that could set a standard well beyond this war, but we've opted against it. I expect we will and should be judged accordingly. I think he's exactly right on that last part. The damage that this is going to do to people's lives and the United States reputation is incalculable. And I don't care if you're the biggest supporter of Zelensky there is, We should not be doing this. This is going to cause decades worth of children and civilians to be maimed, and it's not right. We should play no role in this. The only people that are benefiting are the military contractors that are going to sell these weapons, the same people that benefit from an ever-expanding militarized NATO. I spoke about this with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Monday. I loved his response. This is what he said. Well, you know, the the, uh, the decision to send cluster bombs is horrendous. It's, you know, it completely eviscerates our moral authority. There's 100 nations around the world that have signed a treaty banning cluster bombs as a war crime. 
So, you know, our decision to send these weapons, which are notorious for not only killing civilians for years and years after the conflict is over, but also for for blowback on our own side. You know, during the Iraq War, I think 19 of our um, of our troops were killed by our own cluster bombs. Your thoughts, 800-848-9222. Again, I'm not asking you what side you want to take in the Ukraine conflict. I'm just asking, is the United States doing the right thing here in sending these uh, these cluster munitions to Ukraine? Ron is in Michigan. Hello. Good morning, Frank. Frank, this guy's saying that uh, Putin is a ghoul and a war criminal for uh, using the cluster bombs. We used cluster bombs in Vietnam 50 years ago. Children and farmers are still having their arms. Right. Well, Pat Leahy mentioned that in the Washington Post piece. And and here's the thing, Frank. You know, you know, we we go go around the world causing war crimes. What we did in Vietnam is war crimes, genocide. And we just walk away from it and we create new war crimes all over the world. And this thing in, in Ukraine with Russia invading Ukraine, yeah, Putin's wrong. We're wrong for, for strangling Russia with, with uh, NATO, plain and simple. And there's no other choice but war, war, war. And, you know, I, I'm a lifelong Democrat, but I'm going to tell you, anybody who votes against this war, Republican or Democrat, he's got my support. No more of this warmongering USA, please. S- send that money home. We got, you know, here, Frank. Every time you turn on the TV, they're begging for money for wounded veterans. We can't take care of our, care of our own veterans who are wounded. We got to beg. We got to beg. So they got they got homes and wheelchairs. Give me a break. Take care of our own, please. Thank you, Ron. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. And I'll just add, and this is the last thing I'll say, and then we're going to take your calls, and we'll we'll try to focus on more lighthearted subjects. This is part of the reason. It was so important that Tucker Carlson be on in primetime every night, because now that he's not on a major cable news network on primetime, there's really no one on cable news that is educating people about this. And people just sit there and say, yeah, we hate Russia. We hate Russia. And they sit there like like uh, clapping seals, cheering on, sending these 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 weapons that are going to kill untold numbers of civilians and children. And if Tucker were on still, he would be explaining this to people and he would make this an issue and Republican presidential candidates would have to comment on it. But now there's nobody holding their feet to the fire. Charlie's in hell's kitchen. Hello. Uh, Frank, I want to talk about what you said about Turkey. You were talking about, uh, you were mentioning how, Erdogan, their president, is an Islamic fundamentalist, and you're right about that. And but yet we still do business with him, and the, because he's a NATO ally. And the analogy I want to use is: I'm sure there are people that are radio hosts at your station that you don't like, or there are some that you like more than others. I won't even say you don't like. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to mention sure. who you don't like. That would, for your work relations, that would be a good idea. But there's there are some you don't like, and but the fact that mature adults do is you work with people you don't like to achieve the work-related goals. That happens all the time, and it, it, unfortunately it happens in NATO, too, because uh, we in Turkey don't share the same values. This guy Erdogan, and I, I just want to mention that there – what do you think of that? Yeah, well, look, uh, Charlie, you're right, and I don't have any qualms – thank you for the call – 
I don't have any qualms about being part of an international organization with countries that don't share our values and that we don't get along with. Here's what I do have a problem with. I have a problem with treating an attack on Turkey like it's an attack on New Jersey, which we are bound to do by Article 5. And that is not flying with me. 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hey, uh, Frank. So I think NATO's archaic, and what we ought to do is start thinking about our side of the world, form a new alliance between South America and North America, get these countries together here, and form a base. Okay, that's what I think. Isn't that a, an odd proposal? Actually having America worrying about American defense and not uh, regime change in places like Libya? Imagine that. Well, how did that guy get into this country? Frank is in New Jersey. Hello. Yeah, hi, Frank. So, um, actually, cut through it all, and we have the ability as Americans and as uh, is 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 a voice, and the voice is ceasefire. Uh, Biden, we don't want cluster bombs. Stop it. Go back to the treaty in two twenty twenty two that. Um, uh, I call him Boris Karloff. Boris Johnson went and stopped a peace treaty that they were both willing to sign and sign it and call it out, call it out to everybody and everywhere that we will not tolerate this war anymore and it can end. And then we have arbiters, you know, we graduate. We have arbiters, which is the highest ranking little kids with ambition, want to become that. And, and it's, it's every sovereignty established and every military established wants to be an arbiter for peace. We have committees go into un, you know, un, uh, unsolved uh, sovereignties, conflicts, and they go in and they're protected by not only America, and not only the East and the West have to exist. And we, in respect, when did you ever hear a dictator get insulted because the press called him a dictator? That's G in China. Yet, um, we have a solution and the only solution. Never before could we have a voice of humanity because corruption would never let it happen. But now it has to. We give immunity to people who untangle themselves right. Frank, from the corruption. Uh, Frank, thank you. I want to try and squeeze in at least one more person here before we get to the $1,000 minute. Alan is in Queens. Hello, Alan. Uh, good morning, Frank. I mean, you're a, you are an entertaining guy, and you're informative. You're kind of a renaissance man. But when it comes to Tucker Carlson... You don't have a clue. This is not a journalist. If a journalist willingly tells a lie, that's like a that's like a priest raping a child. I mean, that's the most important thing is to tell the truth. This is a man. I hope he's never on TV again. And that's all I have to say. Thank you, Alan. Well, since Alan was succinct, I'll squeeze in Alan, New Jersey. Hello. Hi, Frank. Um, you know it's to me, I'm listening to this, and if Ukraine wants to cluster bombs, I say give it to them, and then I hear everybody calling, and everybody's like, even in the media, making like this big, all of a sudden this big concern about the cluster bombs. 
But yet, when Russia went over the border in such a barbaric move and started to slaughter Ukraine, the world just sat back and watched. Well, no, that's not true, Al. I mean, uh, Putin, and thank you for the call, uh, Putin was universally decried and denounced, and there was an incredible international coalition of people coming to Ukraine's aid with money, with uh, humanitarian aid, and with military aid. So that's not true. That uh, Putin was widely denounced, sanctioned by the United States and other Western countries, not true at all. All right. Um, those of you that are holding Melvin, Richard, Carol, Larry, if you want to continue to hold, I'll make an effort to get to you. And for the rest of you, if you want to try and win $1,000, now could be your lucky day because we are. Go- oh, by the way, I didn't win the Powerball yesterday, unfortunately. So there's that. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, we will give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you will be $1,000 richer. We'll go ahead and play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Further ado, let us play The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Robertini. Say hello to Artie in New Jersey. Hello, Artie. How you doing, Frank? I'm well, Artie. Uh, have you uh, ever played this game before? Yeah, one time, quite a while ago. Okay, great. So you know the rules, right? I know. All right. You ready to go? Get it. All right. Name a verb. Party. What color is uh, a ruby? What's that? What color is a ruby? Red. What is the name of the band known for the hit song Yellow Submarine? Beatles. What country did Turkey just approve joining NATO? Sweden. What famous document begins with the words, We the People? Constitution. Who wrote the novel, The Great Gatsby? Oh, well, what's his name? Fitzpatrick or Fitzgerald? 
We'll take it. Who was the MVP of last night's All-Star game? Oh, the Castle for the Rockies. Um, Diaz. What is the name of the layer of gases that surrounds the Earth? Uh, uh, that is... Hmm. Layer of the gases. Uh, out of time, out of time, Marty. You did very yeah. well. You made it up to question number eight. It, the the yeah. word you were looking for was the atmosphere. The atmosphere. Uh, the atmosphere. So I'm good. sorry. I'm going to. Uh, sorry. That's all right. All right, uh, Artie. Well done. I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, give Kenneth your information, and we will send you a consolation prize. Those of you that are on hold, I will get to you momentarily. And then we'll, uh, for anybody else, we'll get to, uh, we'll play the thousand dollar, well, excuse me, we'll do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. Uh, speaking of the all-star game, Elias Diaz, he spoke, he's the MVP. He is the catcher for the Rockies. Uh, very, very moving as he spoke with Kevin Burkhart after the game last night about his mother being in attendance at the All-Star Game in Seattle. I know we were just talking and you said your mom was here watching you tonight. What was that like and when you were able to find her as you rounded the bases? Now that's very moving, isn't it? I think I think we may even have a translation. Que hemos que hemos pasado este presente en un momento así. That was incredibly special for me, you know, to have her here. A lot of emotions, but everything that we've been through, all the sacrifices that she made for me, was really special to have her here for me. That's amazing, ladies and gentlemen. The MVP from the Colorado Rockies, Elias Diaz. That's how he pronounces his name, Elias Diaz, not Elias. You see, I got a uh, our Elias on the brain here. So he's totally, he's totally gotten inside. So when you heard me say Elias Diaz before Kenneth, how come you didn't say uh, it's actually Elias? I'll just let you say it. All right, fine, okay. Um, <laughs> Rob Thompson, whose name is not pronounced Robe Thompson or anything, Robe Thompson. Uh, is the manager of the NL team. Well, he's the manager of the Phillies, and because they won the World Series last year, he got to manage the National League All-Star team this year. He talked about winning and uh, Elias Diaz's game-winning hit at the uh, at the end of the game. This was uh, Ro- Rob Thompson. It's fantastic. It really is. When, when I talked to, you know, I talked to all the managers about what the availability was of all their players, what they expected, and I talked to Bud Black about Elias, and, and he said, this is one of the finest people you'll you'll ever meet. He's a complete team player. Do anything you want. Um, if he doesn't play, that's fine. Um, if he does play, that would be great. He's just happy to be there. So for this to happen, and he, he was exactly right. As soon as he walked in the clubhouse and I met him, he said, I'll do anything you want. If I play, I play. If I don't, I don't. I just, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. So for him to do that, I, I, it's fantastic. That is very nice. Uh, very nice. So congratulations to the National League. I'm glad we finally won one of these things. And uh, I, you know, what, what is also nice to see, it's such a pleasure to see Shohei Otani. And you really can't appreciate and speak enough 
about what an incredible player he is. I mean, this is someone that may go down in history as the greatest baseball player of all time. And it, and I, I don't think that's an exaggeration on my part, because for him to be the best hitter in baseball right now and one of the best pitchers in baseball right now, it's unprecedented. The only person in history that has ever come close to something like this was Babe Ruth. But the Babe Ruth comparison isn't a perfect one because Babe Ruth started as a pitcher who could hit home runs. But because he could hit home runs in an era where no one hit home runs, they had him stop being a pitcher. They moved him to the outfield so that he could play every day, and he stopped pitching. So Babe Ruth's career as a major league pitcher, while he was a great pitcher, no question about it, it was two, maybe three years. He did not have a lengthy pitching career. Shohei Otani seems poised, as long as he remains healthy, to have a lengthy career as a pitcher, and as a very successful hitter. So it was nice to see him in the game. And even though I have mixed feelings about talking to the players on the field during the game, it was interesting to hear the announcers talk with the players about how much they enjoy playing with and against Shohei Otani. And the players all said, and these are the best baseball players in the world, how how they're impressed with what Otani's been able to do. It's really an incredible thing. I mean, when his contract is up, if he lasts with the uh, Angels that long, when his contract is up, he can go to really any major league team that he wants and make as much money as he wants. The big question for the Angels is, are they going to trade him? And Because you could get basically anything for Otani. And if he's not going to stay with the Angels because he wants to go to the Mets or the Yankees and make $80 million a year, which I don't think is out of the question then you could essentially rebuild your entire farm system with one trade. So it's uh, it's a kind of a gamble. So I don't know. It was interesting to see. And uh, congratulations again to the National League. 800-848-9222. Carol in New Jersey has been patiently holding. Hello, Carol. Oh, thank you, Frank. Um, you know, something I would love to see Shohei Otani come to the Yankees. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I think every baseball team in America would love to see it. And in Japan. <laughs> yeah. But the real reason why I was calling was because of um, uh, Orson Welles. Uh, you had played him being very nasty to people on the radio. And, you know, he had a lot of problems with the producers, especially at RKO. Um, you know, he was furious about the Magnificent Ambersons. He didn't like the way the film ended, and uh, he stopped working with them at that point. But I loved him as the shadow on the radio. Oh, I mean, the voice is, I still listen to some of the radio dramas that he did, but that, that temperament, yeah. those conflicts that you're talking about with the studio, they went back, uh, they lasted his whole career. He was furious yeah. with the studio over Touch of Evil. He maintained he never got his version of Touch of Evil mm -hmm. uh, made, even though he was the director. So, yeah, you're right about that. It's just funny to hear it play out in real time over something like a frozen peas commercial. 800-848-9222. Richard is in Texas. Hello there, Richard. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing just fine, Richard. Thanks. 
Midland, Texas, you raise a family, and nearby Odessa, you raise hell, just uh, for uh, people to know. Uh, going back to the movies, I'm a real movie buff, and uh, i uh looking forward to seeing the Scorsese movie with uh, DiCaprio, and supposedly that's coming out in October. I don't know if you know that movie that I'm talking about, uh, about the uh, oil industry or in Oklahoma and Indians. and uh, Yeah, I, I, I don't, I've heard about it, but I don't know anything about it. Gotcha. Also, on the uh, movie, uh, Citizen Kane, a magnificent movie, uh, Third Man, unbelievable, Joseph Cotton, terrific movie, Orson yeah. Welles. Uh, 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 the movie, a little getting into it a little more about the, one of the great movies of all time, obviously, Citizen Kane. Rosebud, from what I gathered watching it, was the last word he said in the beginning before he dies, and then you go back to the flashbacks. And what I got from Rosebud uh, was that was his sled that he loved and adored, and he was so cluttered with everything he collected over the years, that was the one thing he could not find was his sled from childhood. And that's, in my opinion, what Rosebud uh, meant to the movie. Uh, would you agree on that uh, analysis? I, I would. I would agree with that uh, for the most part. The one thing that I, I found jarring based on your your recitation of that and your analysis, which I think is very sound, is you ever think, Richard, of saying spoiler alert? What if people haven't seen the film? I was worried about that, and I'm uh, just hoping that... Uh, People in the audience uh, all over the country and all over the world have uh, short-term memory. Uh, well, what let me tell you a story. 23 years ago, 22 years ago, I was in the event videography business working with my friend Dennis Petoff, who still has a, uh, a terrific uh, video company. It's called Lita Video. And uh, if you ever need an occasion to have something videotaped, they do a great job. If you email me, I'll hook you up with them. But... I was working with Dennis, and a guy in the band at a wedding or a bar mitzvah that I was videotaping, he, it, we're all in this common area where the vendors would hang out and have a snack or just get ready. And this guy loudly says to his bandmate, I'll tell you the score, and the score was a Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Ed Norton film, three great actors, not a great film, but a good film. I'll tell you, the score was the first movie I've seen in a long time where, and then he gives away the ending of the movie. I turn around. I said, excuse me. Some of us still want to see that movie. How, how could you just say that without any warning, without saying spoiler alert? Well, he said, you know, he basically laughed it off. And about three months after that, he got into a car accident driving home from a, a party or an occasion, and he seriously injured his leg, went into the hospital, caught an infection in the hospital, and died. And died. So I'm not saying, first of all, I feel, he seemed like a nice enough guy. I feel bad that he died. I'm not saying that if you spoil the ending to a movie that you're going to die, but that guy did. All right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The late, great Andy B. singing The Other Side of Midnight. If you ever want to know what kind of music we play on this program, join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Without further ado, it is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Ivan! You're way off on Babe Ruth's pitching record. He was approximately 98 and 48. He had a way lower ERA than Otani. He had the World Series record for consecutive score of sitting, so Ford broke it in 61. And by the way, he was undefeated pitching for the... Robert! The use of cluster bombs by the U.S. to the Ukrainian people is wrong. They also kill indiscriminately wildlife. Lisa... The other side of midnight. Get the recycling effort, Rachel. And where's my bumper sticker, the magnetic one? Raji. Although the perennially importunate, Zelensky, with a finger in every pie, attempted to influence the Eurovision contest in favor of Ukraine, the organizers declined. Roger. Uh, a good solution, I think, for for cell phones in school is each desk has a phone stand mounted on it. The pupils can then sit down, put their phone in the phone stand, and turn it toward the teacher so she can see the face of all the phones during class. Rusty. Yeah. Sid, what, since Sid uh, moved to Rockaway, what does he think he is? Charles Atlas or something? Jim. Babe Ruth was the best left-handed pitcher of the 1910s, held the World Series consecutive shutout innings record 50 years, greatest home run hitter of all time. Not two years, but 20 years he played and did that. Well, I, we'll answer that tomorrow. Frank Morano, good day. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.